Oh, my God. 
It's a Monday morning. It's our nine days format, a Monday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. And I thank you for tuning in and being part of this amazing and incredible listener experience. Nine days for us. It's a spoken word format primarily. And today, of course, no exception. It's a, a tradition we started for this year yesterday with Matis and JM Sunday, a tradition we've had for many years here at JM in the AM. We learn as much as we can mostly from Rabbi Beryl Wine and his amazing lectures. He has a lecture series entitled Israel Then and Now, and you'll hear his introduction to this lecture and then a discussion with a key um, a key figure in modern Jewish history. Rabbi Beryl Wine with a unique and amazing series entitled Israel Then and Now. Information, by the way, about all of Rabbi Wine's lectures, one 800 499 W-E-I-N, 1-800-499-W-E-I-N, and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Uh, I would like to acknowledge and thank uh, the Leo Berger Foundation for helping to sponsor uh, tonight's event. And uh, I'd like to especially thank my friend Harvey Schwartz for his cooperation. This is a conversation uh, between uh, Ambassador uh, Avner, uh, who needs no introduction, and I'm too modest to give you an introduction of me. Uh, So uh, we are doing away with all of the pleasantries, uh, and uh, we'll begin the discussion now. Uh, I wanted to focus, uh, Rebuta, on... uh, the past, if I may, especially the past uh, when uh, the 1940s and 1950s, when the effects of the Holocaust, when we learned about it, uh, you were in England uh, in the 40s and then came here? I came in 47. You came in 47. I I remember uh, in Chicago, you know, there's an old discussion whether American Jewry knew about it or not. Uh, So individually, I can say that a lot of us didn't uh, because it was like wishful thinking. Uh, My father, for instance, had a brother that was a Rav in Lita, and uh, he had a wife, and they had six children, and uh, we didn't hear anything. And as late as the 1940s, 43, 44, my father was still of the opinion that somehow we could save him. Uh, when in reality, he was killed in 1940 by the Bolsheviks when they came into uh, Lithuania. But uh, generally speaking, in America, there was almost no publicity regarding the Holocaust. The New York Times had it on page 62. And uh, no one put any pressure. 
except for the Bergson group and for the Agudas Arabonim, uh, who uh, both were uh, certainly at that time not mainstream American Jewry. What was it in your, uh, in your part of the world? You were still in England yet. I was still in England. As a matter of fact, uh, first of all, let me say, delighted, pleasure, <laughs> honor, and uh, were almost like family, so many of us here. Uh, I was 11 years old when World War II broke out. Uh, and it was good fun. Uh, suddenly, School was more erratic than uh, usual, and uh, my dad turned our cellar basement into an air raid shelter. And suddenly, we—he was an air raid warden. He had—we had a tin helmet in the house. We—we—we uh, we, uh, we, we had uh, pranks in, in air raid shelters. We were, our, our hobby at the time was to collect shrapnel. Uh, shrapnel. Uh, either from the, the German bombs or from the uh, anti-aircraft shells, uh, and we used to swap. So, uh, by the time I'm, I'm now a, a teenager and I joined B'nai Kiva, and uh, fast forward to 1945, and uh, hostels began to spring up of uh, child survivors, not the children, of, but real child survivors. And uh, from B'nai Kiva, we would go to play ping pong with these kids in these hostels. Most of them were bloated. Most of them had shaven heads. Uh, the first because they were in, uh, unable to eat solids, and the second because of lice. Uh, and uh, the good times and the fun was over because Ernest Bevin was a f foreign secretary and uh, he was the devil and the demon to us all. Wherever Jews met, I recall this vividly, wherever Jews met at that time they argued uh, because they had found out and they learned about their families that were no longer. And uh, I would, the only word I can think of now is anger. And anger against the British, and anger against this man, Ernest Bevin, who was the architect of closing of the gates of Eret Israel to the survivors. The anger at seeing on, when you, you went to the movies and you saw the news, and you saw the, the British Navy turning back these, 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 these boats of the, uh, they, these rickety and unseaworthy boats that were packed with this miserable uh, of, of, human of, cargo. Of, of human cargo and some of them went down and, and it was enough of the combination of I had an ideology with a kiva uh, I had a, a cause kibbutz Eretz Israel and I had a fire in my belly and I'm the youngest of seven. Uh, I'm the baby. Uh, there are only two of us left now. There's myself, and I have a sister who's 96. God bless her. Maybe slim. Uh, but I was the only one who. You're came. much younger than she is, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not much. 
But I, uh, I, 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 there came the day that I decided, and I had my, my mother's blessing more than my dad's. My mother was, was uh, mortally sick. I didn't know. Because three weeks after I arrived in Jerusalem in October 47, I got the news that she'd passed away. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, in, 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 in the broad canvas of Holocaust. So I'll tell you a little about uh, Chicago. Uh, I remember there was a there was a rabbi in America by the name of Ephraim Oshri. Yes, I remember. Right, he was a uh, not a he was a survivor, but he was more than a survivor. For by some uncanny ability, he knew what happened to everybody. And I remember once he came to Chicago. I it was before my bar mitzvah, but I remember vividly. He came to the house to tell my father and mother what had happened to my uncle and aunt and cousins in Lithuania. And I remembered a moment, uh, and uh, the truth of the matter is from that moment on, at least for, uh, till, till my father, uh, uh, maybe 15, 20 years later, I, I realized my father was not the same person. He, because he, he had, like much of American Jewry had, a feeling of guilt that he didn't save him, that he couldn't get the affidavits, he couldn't get the, uh, the immigration permit, he couldn't get him into America. And... Uh, at that time in America, Franklin Roosevelt was still God. And, uh, you know, when Roosevelt died, we were living in the Jewish neighborhood. I mean, people wept on the street. And uh, no one realized uh, what went on. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, we are... Uh, we were against the British, and for we were raised in school that the British, uh, the British and the Russians were our allies. They were holy people, and now we were against the British. And then uh, Jews in America weren't accustomed that uh, Jews should fight. And uh, the eight cell was blown up, and the, and the lechi, and the, the whole thing was unfolding. And we really didn't know. We didn't know how to put ourselves together. But there was a strong uh, Pola Mizrahi in Chicago, a Bnei Akiva in Chicago, uh, that we all belonged to. It was the only place where religious young people had a chance to be together. I remember my Rebbe, Rabbi Christward, Zecher Tzadik Levrocha, who one could not suspect of being a, a, a political Zionist. They were all Zionists, but they were not political. We have to make a great, there's a great difference between the two. And uh, he would tell us in the shir, he said, I'm a member of the world, Agudis Yisrael, and the Chicago Bnei Akiva. <laughs> because the Chicago Bnei Akiva is what held us together. And the Chicago Bnei Akiva has had a great uh, influence here in Israel. Uh, many institutions and many uh, great teachers and rabbonim, etc., all came from the Chicago B'nai Akiva. But that was it. And the only moment that I remember that, you know, that I can never forget is that uh, 
the Sunday after the declaration of the state of Israel was declared on a Friday. <clears throat> and I remember I walked with my father to shul that Friday night. My father was not given over to public emotion. And he wept every step of the way. Because to European Jews, you know, you know, like it happened. And unfortunately, uh, 65, 70 years later, uh, that emotion is hard to dis rediscover. But he wept every step of the way. And that Sunday night, there was a rally at the Chicago Stadium where uh, eventually Michael Jordan played. <laughs> you have to say what the yichus is. <laughs> and uh, at that stadium, there were 20,000 Jews in the stadium, and there were another 20 or 30,000 outside in the parking lot because they couldn't get in, so they, they didn't have video then, but they had uh, loudspeakers that you could hear. And Golda Meir, then she was still Meyerson, uh, was the speaker. And the program began, so I'll tell you, all my non-Zionist rabbeim went. The whole yeshiva went. And uh, the program began by raising the Israeli flag to the rafters of the Chicago Stadium. And the entire audience wept, but wept uncontrollably. It was a sea of tears. The whole 2,000 years poured out. And even though then uh, I was not as clever as I am now, <laughs> I thought to myself, the rest of the program is superfluous. There are no words, there's nothing. They, they should have sang a tikva and gone home, and that was enough. But that was the turning point. But uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, our teachers who went through the Holocaust never mentioned it. The refugees that came to Chicago never mentioned it. No one talked about it. It was... The, the elephant in the room, so to speak, that no one spoke about. And I think that one of the uh, greater developments uh, in our time, and I think a lot of it is due to the state of Israel, is simply that now, at least, it's not taboo. It's now, it's, but its effects on the Jewish people are enormous. They are until today. Well, my uh, first Yom Atzmut was uh, in a isolated spot uh, where more or less where Yad Vashem is now, overlooking Ein Karim. Uh -huh. And I was a, a member of the 20 odd of us. We were glorified, inglorious bucket brigade <laughs> hacking out trenches in the hillside parity to what we understood was going to be an attempted attack from Enkarim where Iraqi regulars had allegedly infiltrated and they were to join up with a Jordanian brigade of the Arab Legion that was coming up from Jericho and attack Jerusalem from the west and we were supposed to stop them and we had between us maybe 12, 15 World War I rifles that none of us really knew how to use. And uh, it was this Friday, as you say, I remember it was a very hot day, and as night fell, 
rumors also fell on every side that Ben Gurion would not declare independence, that the British would not leave, and that the Arabs had taken downtown Yerushalayim. And uh, our, our so-called commander Elisha, he eventually sent one of us, a fellow by the name of Mala. He was Leopold Mala. He was Gustav Mala's grandnephew. Wow. He was a violinist, and wherever he went, in his knapsack on his back. He carried his violin in this wooden case. And uh, we, were, we were concerned about his hands. And so uh, we, we, we tried to give him easier jobs. But uh, he, Marla, was sent into town. And he came back close to midnight. And uh, he brought with him a bottle of wine, I recall. And he brought with him, he opened his, from his knapsack and the side pockets. He tossed out. Uh, in the dim light of a hurricane lamp, he, he tossed out all kinds of forgotten luxuries like Kraft cheese and Cadbury's milk chocolate. And, and, and where'd you get this from? And he said that the, that's interesting, we're all Yerushalmim. We were concerned which way would the British leave Bevingrad? Do you remember what Bevingrad was? Beringrad, when you come down Zion Square and you turn right and Rehoviafo, that whole area was cordoned off with barbed wire and that's where the British had their military headquarters. And uh, they, they, uh, the question is, would they leave when they come out? Would they go down Jaffa Road that way and thereby block the Arabs from ascending up Shlomtzion and Malka? and allow us to enter, or would they go up Jaffa Road and block us? And uh, they went the other way. And, and Mala ran into the Binyan Generali, where the Misada right. Prim now is, and that was police headquarters, British police headquarters, and it found in the officer's mess <laughs> all these goodies. <laughs> and, uh, and when he came back, as I say, it was close to midnight, he told us that Gurion had declared independence and that, the, and that the British had hauled down their Union Jacks and, and that the Jewish state was to come into being at midnight. And yes, there were Chicago tears and there were tears in there and, and we slapped each other's back and so on. And then our commander Alicia said, Hey, Mala, Mashema Medina Shalana. And he looked at us blankly. He said, Shachachti <laughs> Lishol. So somebody said, oh, it will be called Yehuda. Uh, David the Melech, Judea, was Yehuda. And others said, Tzion, it's obvious name, Tzion. And the third said, Marabi Israel. And uh, then Elisha took the bottle of wine and he, and he poured it into a, a, a mug. And he said, let's drink a lechaim to our new state, whatever. He's saying, whereupon? A chosit. And we call it Reb Nussin de Chazen. In those days, yeah, Meir Sharim also yeah, participated. They fought. Yeah. They fought. They fought. Uh, one of us was Reb Nussin de Chazen. He said, Chakez, a Shabbos, let's make Kiddish first. And so he took this mug and he, Yoma Shishi. And uh, when he came to Mekadesha Shabbos, he started to shuttle back and forth, and never in my life shall I forget that Sheikh Yonu. Uh, you say Sheikh Yonu, let me just say that 
the newspaper of Agudas Yisrael on the Sunday morning edition, the headline was Boruch Shechionu Vikimonu Vigionu Lachman so uh, well, it's I a just, different feeling, yeah. I just have to say, uh, but I just to, just to jump back a moment, I, I owe this to history. Mimi's dad, in the same, in 1939, you talk yeah. about Afi Davis. Yeah. He went back from London, back to Warsaw, where his family was. There were very eminent, uh, very eminent mochris for him, the name of Salingold. And uh, you still see this for him with uh, Mola Betzenegal, with affidavits, and they didn't leave. And when he came back and the plane stopped in Berlin, the, the, he, he, he went up to a, a German porter, this was Mimi's dad, and asked for a carriage where he can late filling. Yeah. This was 1939. But I just had to get that for the record. Very good. As a matter of solemn bias, when I get home, when we say, why didn't you mention that? <laughs> uh, you know, there's an autobiography of Rav Gorn that's out, that I'm in the middle of reading. So he has there that in the siege of Yushalayim, which he participated in, and he actually fought, uh, when he became the chief of the Israeli, the chief rabbi of the Israeli army, uh, Rav Maimon, and Rav Herzog and Ben-Gurion, uh, they convinced him to take it then, Shaltiel. Uh, so they didn't have anything to eat. The army literally had nothing to eat. And the British left over blue beef, which was trefe meat, canned trefe meat, and they left over uh, two warehouses full of this trefe meat. So he writes there that Dove Joseph, who was the governor of Yerushalayim then, right. said uh, he's going to distribute it to the population, uh, you know, and, that he, and he's going to give it to the soldiers uh, so they have what to eat, because he said they, they need protein, they have nothing to eat, they're going to help. And Goring got up and he said, you know, we didn't wait 2,000 years to give trade meat to the Jewish army. Now Goring was an iron person. I mean, he wasn't afraid of anybody. And uh, so he said, no, you're not going to do it. But the blue beef cans were all there. So what were they going to do with him? So he created a heter, very interesting heter, and which has a place in halacha, based on an opinion of the Rambam. The Rambam's opinion, uh, he says clearly in Ilchus Malachim, is that in the middle of a war, the soldiers, even, even if they're not necessarily in danger of starvation, but being a soldier in the middle of the war, they can eat anything. That, that's the Rambam. And the Kesev missionary of Yosef Karo agrees with him, but most of the Ashkenazic postkin don't agree with him. And so Gorin took it upon himself to make the compromise. He said, in all the military hospitals where there are wounded, we are going to give them the British blue beef. But for the regular army, we're not going to do it. And uh, that was, uh, so he said that that began his career of being criticized by the right and the left, <laughs> by the religious and the secular. But he said he felt he had the halachic grounds for it. 
and that that was the correct decision, and that uh, so uh, that's uh, you know it's the same thing with the Cadbury. Uh, to a great extent, in the siege of Jerusalem, Jerusalem lived by uh, British uh, supplies that they had left over and that now were confiscated. I want to tell you one more thing. You know, uh, we had a member in our shul, a man by the name of Vatkin. I don't know if you ever knew him or not. I knew Vatkin. I knew the family. Yeah, the family. So Vatkin's father was an Ilui. He was one of the outstanding students of America's Arav. My father knew him very well. My father was America's Arav also. And uh, Vodkin in 1927 uh, was offered a uh, leading rabbinic position in Lithuania. They came from Lithuania originally, whatever. So he went to Rav Cook to confer with him what he should do. So Rav Cook told him, and this is what Vodkin told me, Rav Cook told him it's better to be a grocery man in Jerusalem <laughs> than a Rav in Lithuania. And he then went out and he became the largest wholesale grocer in Jerusalem. <laughs> and during the siege, he opened his warehouses, whatever he had, so that there was some food to be eaten. So Vatkin used to tell me that was Rav Cook's broche, not just to him, but to Jerusalem, the better to be a grocer here because they'll need you someday to be a Rav in Lithuania. If I may just add before we move on, uh, I, I cannot be sitting in my uh, Aaron Kodesh in a shul, siege of Jerusalem, without mentioning Mimi's sister, my sister in law, Esther yes. Kellingill, who volunteered for action in the Jewish quarter of the old city when the Jewish quarter of the old city was a siege within a siege. And uh, on the day that uh, the quarter surrendered, Esther died from her wounds. And uh, are you also mentioning what it did to the Jewish people, Bechlal Israel? And uh, I would like to suggest that it fundamentally changed the status of us all of the whole of the Jewish people, in the sense that until Hei Iyar, May the 14th, 1948, the Jews, since the Horbana Bayit in 70 AD, had been a mere object of history. Meaning to say that others were always making the decisions for us. Came Hei Iyar, Yom Atzmaut, 1948, and from that day forth, we became once again the subjects of history. Which meant that we were making the decisions for ourselves. If we wanted our streets to be clean, we had to be the sweepers. If we wanted bread, we had to go it. And if we were attacked, we had to defend ourselves. And this is what I think, in my eyes, is a momentous change that began. We were 650,000 Jews in 1948. Then we became a million, and two million, three million, four million, five million, and now we're supposed to be six million. And uh, with all that that implies. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely correct. 
When uh, you started out here, uh, the country was pretty much my pie land, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> uh, my pie land in the sense that, uh, if you look at the history of the Zion... My pie was the Mifleged Pole Eretz Israel. That was uh, Ben-Gurion, the socialist uh, party, but it was not communist, and it was not really Marxist, but it was very, very left. It was outflanked on the left by Mapam, and they were outflanked on the left by the communists, by Maki. And uh, so... And they uh, were outflanked by the Kananim. That's right. <laughs> Just as in our camp, there's always somebody to the right. So on the left, there always was somebody to the left. But uh, Mapai dominated the state of Israel, and until the... until. Uh, Begin was elected, probably. It was, the, it was it. It was synonymous with the government, and it was synonymous with the state. So your experiences with Mapai. Well, the, the history of the laying of the foundations uh, of a country were, was labor Zionism. Uh, they were the second Aliyah. Right. They were the kibbutz. They were the, the moshav. Uh, they were the haganah. They were the the scaffolding and the infrastructure on which the Medina was eventually established. We religious Zionists. We came along a generation later. Uh, the first uh, religious kibbutz established in was 1936. Right. And if you look at the map of of those days, you'll find that the religious kibbutzim were invariably in the most isolated and hazardous of places. Why? Yeah. Because I was brought up in, in this ethos. We have to prove that we're better than the others, that we have to make up for time, and therefore we were volunteering for, if you, there were per capita more religious kibbutzim fell than any other of the kibbutz movement. I'm speaking of the kibbutz dati. So if you take in the south, uh, there was, was, there was all, there was a Beirut Yitzchak, and there was, uh, there, oh, I forgot their names, and then there was, the, there was the whole Gush Etzion right. fell. Uh, the, the, and the, the war at Tirat Tzvi and the, and and the, the, uh, the Arava. That's right, right. that's right, that's right. So uh, uh, my experience was, uh, I got in, you're right, Mapai governed everything. They married into each other, they gave each other <laughs> jobs. Uh, they, they, they ran the army, they ran the government, they ran the economy. They, and uh, I kind of got into the foreign service by a fluke. And it was, uh, Goldemeyer was then the foreign minister, and, and she, as we say, she was a Fabrenta Polizion. Right. Uh, Labour Zionist. She was the international and, socialist. Indeed, she used she, to attend the, the socialist. She convention. used to hobnob with them, and she loved it, and they loved her. Until seventy-three. Uh, until seventy-three. <laughs> until seventy-three. Well, Rabbi Wine is saying seventy-three. I flew with with her with Golda Meir uh, to Strasbourg. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, where she, she addressed the Socialist International. And uh, uh, I won't go into the details, suffice it to say that all 
her pals of the Socialist International, who are now heads of government. This was 1973, the Yom Kippur War, shortly after the war. Not a single one of them would allow the planes of the American airlift, the, the galaxies, these massive planes, to land and refuel in their territories on the way to Israel, where without those reinforce, reinforcements of weaponry, of, of materiel, I don't know how the Yom Kippur War would have ended. <laughs> and so as far as Golda Meir is concerned, she became very disenamored of her international socialist doctrines. But even those who were of that school, where did they come from? Most of them had been to Cheder. Most of them had been to Yeshiva. Most of them knew. And they take a man like Ben Gurion, he was a fanatic when it came to Tanakh. Right. Every youngster in Israel should know Tanakh. He established the Chidona Tanakh. The problem was, he didn't have the teachers to teach it. To teach it. And this is how the erosion began in the uh, state school system of Tanakh. But the, uh I tell you, in the United States, uh, in the late in the 1940s and 1950s, there was uh, a very strong affinity to the left, uh, and uh, the communists of Russia really infiltrated the United States. I remember when I went to college, all of my professors were communists. It was frightening. And uh, they they uh, they ridiculed us, the yeshiva students, publicly. And uh, they, the Stalin was the wave of the future, and all of that was going to be. And uh, it only started to turn as the Cold War became more intense. And even though uh, McCarthy overshot, and he was not a pleasant figure, uh, much of what he said wasn't wrong. And because of that, therefore, uh, uh, I think part of the problem that American Jewry had, if I could say they had a problem, with the state of Israel was that the state of Israel was socialist and they were not socialists. The state of Israel was leftist and they were not leftist. And uh, they couldn't understand why if they wanted to open a business here in Israel, the Istadrut had to be their partner. Uh, they just you know, and that was a complaint uh, when I was in the rabbinate already. That was a complaint that I heard for decades, and it was a complete misreading of what the state of Israel was, and a complete misunderstanding of what the, polit the political situation here was. I have to say, you didn't no, tell no us prime you minister ever asked me to what party I belong, uh -huh. and I began with Eshkol. And then Golda, then Rabin, of course, begging it was, didn't even enter one's mind. Uh, and then Shimon Peres. Um, in that respect, um, they, they, they retained a, a, uh, the principle of a 
public service of civil servant of what was the fluke that got you in uh, the fact that I was an ex kibbutzni how can it be repeated? <laughs> I, uh, I was, I, I was a, first of all, the, the, my credentials as an ex kibbutznik didn't do me any harm in Golda's eyes. Second of all, uh, which kibbutz were you at? Lavi. Uh -huh. I'm proud to say that I'm a, a founder, one of the founders of kibbutz Lavi. And then there's an old kibbutz saying that a chaver leaves a kibbutz either because he has a wife or he hasn't a wife. <laughs> and uh, my dear beloved baby eventually came the, the ultimatum and I made the, the right choice. But uh, uh, our, 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 our most cherished friends to this day are of that generation uh, of, uh, of Lavi, true heroes. Uh, but the... the uh, uh, Golda's experience uh, with international socialists. I wonder whether there's not here a lesson for us with regard to this Medinat Israel within the family of nations. Somehow we're different. Somehow we're always the odd state out. Uh, and it's something that I've struggled with uh, throughout much of my career. Because on the one hand, our task, uh, whether working for the Prime Minister's office or the Misrad of Chutz, is to present ourselves and Israel as a, a normal nation within the family of nations. And yet we are not. Uh, we are an abnormal people with an abnormal history and an abnormal land. There's something, there's something eternally Jewish about it, whether we will it or not. Right. It deserves consideration. Why? Why? Because the whole principle of Zionism, of secular Zionism, was to, make to normalization. Right. We were going to be like and there we are, else. 65 years later, the very antithesis, not only that, but secular Zionism promised that with normalization will come the end of, of anti-Semitism. And that is not an effort. Anomalies upon anomalies. Well, I, I can only say, you know, you're a, a rabbi is a rabbi is a rabbi, so I want to tell you, uh, in uh, the Novi Yecherskel records uh, that in the exile of Bovo, the elders of Israel came to him, and they said to him, uh, you know, like, we quit. You know, with the, the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed, we're in exile in Bavel, and they said to him, the entire house of Israel, we're going to do it like all the other nations of the world. We quit. You know, it's not with the nonsense. The first generation bit off their thumbs because they didn't want to sing, right? How can we sing God's praises in Babylonia? The second generation didn't bite off their thumbs. The third generation were good Babylonians. And therefore, the Novi says he doesn't know what to answer them. And he describes that that night he has a vision, a prophetic vision, and Kaviochel, the Rabboni Shalom, appears to him. And he asks him, what happened? You know, God always enters into... Uh, friendly conversation with us before uh, delivering the message. 
So you said, like, what happened at the office today? You know, like, what happened? So you said, the elders of Israel came to me. Ma'omru, what did they say? So he said, they said, we're going to be like everybody else. Ma Marta, what did you answer them? He said, only you can, I have no answer. This is what the Lord of hosts says. You will never be I will rule you with my outstretched hand. It'll never be So I don't think that Israel will ever be a member of the Security Council. I don't say that. Uh, I don't say that pessimistically, but I, I just don't think it's going to happen. We don't belong to any regional group. We don't belong to any region. Right? We don't belong to anybody. And uh, so uh, it's a long-standing problem. That does not mean that the Foreign Office should not work to try and make us more acceptable, so to speak. But uh, basically, uh, you know, we're always the odd man out. I just saw, you know, Belgium had the, te the Davis Cup tennis on tournament Kippur. on Yom Kippur, and Israel is scheduled to play. So the Israeli Tennis Association said, no, we're not playing, we forfeit the game, to, their, to our credit. But in the non-Jewish world, what's going to, you know, Shei Pei, right, the Gemara says, Shabbos Hayom, Pesach Hayom, Yom Kippur Hayom, it's always like that, another Jewish holiday. How many holidays do you have? I remember when I was a lawyer in Chicago, you know, and, uh, I, uh, I once went before a judge and I asked for a continuance of motion. The judge was a Jewish judge and he was a descendant of Reb Kiva Eger. And the, uh, the judge said to me, okay, counselor, May 19th. So I took out my pocket calendar and I said, your honor, I cannot appear. He said, why can't you appear? I said, it's a Jewish holiday. He said, what Jewish holiday? I said, Shavuos. He said, there is no such Jewish holiday. <laughs> so uh, you put your finger on the, on the, on the, exactly on the pulse. Would uh, you not say that our identity our collective identity is totally unique within the family of nations in there. Yitziat Mitzrayim, Exodus, we entered history as a people. Mahamad Har Sinai, we entered history as a nation faith. And this synergy, this combination of peoplehood and religion, is what identifies the Jew as a Jew. He can't be the one without the other, although many throughout the centuries have tried. And therefore, we have a unique identity within the family of nations. Because where does one begin and the other end? Right. They can never be separated. And we stand, this is why there's only one Jewish state, in the whole of the family of nations. Why aren't there more? 
there are so many Christian states and Muslim states and 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 and, 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 and Buddhist states and Francophonic and Anglo-Saxon. You're not counting Florida, though. Honey. <laughs> We're the only Hebrew-speaking state in the world, present company accepted. <laughs> You're 100% right. We're the only, right, it's the only one that, that really is our, uh, our special... This is destiny. This is destiny. That's a different... This is is gone. Right, there is a different history and a different destiny, and that, uh, that's really what impels us all the way. Uh, Ambassador Avner wrote a great book called The Prime Ministers. They're making movies out of it, etc. You know. uh, but it's a wonderful book. Uh, there's one anecdote I, I want you to tell because I, uh, I enjoy it so much, and that's the anecdote of your birthday party with President Ford. <laughs> to say, well, it, it, does, uh, it does dovetail into what we were speaking about before, right. and the labor, the labor Zionism, right. and the secular uh, ethos of the governments of, of the day until Begin came into office. In other words, I, who was a member of the staff of these various prime ministers, uh, I, I did have occasional problems of Shabbat, and, uh, Rav Gorim was my pussy. Yes. Um, because I, he he understood such problems from the army. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, oh, obviously problems of kashrut. Uh, so I always went. We would travel to Washington, and Israeli prime ministers traveled to Washington to the White House more than any other government head of government in the world. That's still. Which is part of the enigma we're talking about. That's right. Uh, and so I got to know the housekeeper of the White House rather well. Her name was Mary Lou. I got to know her well because uh, she would look after my dietary needs whenever there was a luncheon or a dinner and so forth. Uh, it all changed when Begin came into office and he insisted that in public all functions have got to be cashier. But before Begin, I'm now... I'm now it's now 75. I'm working with Yitzhak Rabin, Prime Minister. First term. First term. And Gerald Ford is the president. Yeah. And um, he throws a banquet in the state dining room upstairs in the White House for Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. And before uh, I called up Mary Lou and I said, yes, Mary said, I assure you, yes, I know it'll be okay. Came the dinner, and uh, everybody was being served except me. And they were being served this succulent roast pheasant, roast potatoes, garnished beans. I remember the men menu vividly. And, and uh, except me, my place setting was empty. Not only that, but they'd misspelled my name. Uh, they'd written uh, Yeduha Avna instead of Yehuda Avna. And I, I thought maybe that's the reason why they passed me over, because they're looking for... So you, uh, the man on my left 
to my left was a General Brown, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, he was flirting with Barbara Walters on my right, <laughs> flirting behind my back. It's the honest truth. And uh, at one point, General Brown cranes his neck, leans over to mark my place card, and he says to me, you do hard, you're not eating with us tonight. Uh, whereupon, as if on cue, a butler stepped forward and he placed before me an extravaganza of color that consisted of a base of lettuce as thick as a Bible. On top of that was a mound of diced fruits. On top of that was a blob of cottage cheese. On top of that was a swish of whipped cream. So the thingamajig stood about a foot high. And compared to everybody else's deep brown roasted pheasant, it glittered like fireworks. And Barbara Walters began to applaud. And this caught the attention of President Ford at an adjacent table, who leaned over to Rabin and whispered something in his ear. And Rabin whispered something back into his. Whereupon, the president literally, he took his, his glass of wine, stood up and called out to me, Happy birthday, young fella! Whereupon <laughs> uh, the whole of the state dining room rose to its feet and they began singing, Happy birthday, dear you do her. <laughs> and I was mortified. <laughs> and, and after dinner, I asked Rabin, Lamata Martelosa Yomo Lady Chili. He said, and I, I quote him verbatim and all, and seriously, he said, That's you know, uh, today uh, we all feel that somehow uh, the country is divided. The Israeli uh, political spectrum is too fractured. Uh, is that really more so, or it's just, uh, the, you know, every generation thinks that uh, it's the best of times and the worst of times? Uh, I think it was always that way. I think the... the uh, the uh, part of the problem, not part of the problem, but part of it is that Israel has become too successful and it doesn't have the pressures that it once felt and therefore we can allow ourselves the luxuries of, uh, of being, uh, you know, slicing the pie and slicing the pie and slicing it further. But uh, generally speaking, from what I remember, uh, when I was a rover in Miami Beach, for instance, uh, all the Israeli leaders came and I had a chance to talk to them from uh, Dr. Berg uh, to Menachem Porsche to Rabin and to Yigal Alon. Uh, I, uh, you know, I don't feel that it's any different today uh, than, than it was then, except that uh, probably there's more uh, communication and publicity today than there ever was before. What's your opinion, you? My opinion is, uh, it's not an opinion. I, I, I remember vividly the, uh, the, 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 the inner fracture within society uh, was much more acute, potent than it is today. That is, uh, there is a dialogue taking place today. It's a very noisy one. It's a very untidy one. It's a very raucous one. 
But nevertheless, uh, but in those days of yore, we were talking about my pie before, there were literally war, the big war was between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And it was Begin who broke that wall down. Who put Begin into office in 1970? There was a Sephardim. Uh, he spoke for them, uh, and, and they, they, they felt uh, a, a, a bond with this Ashkenazi from, from Warsaw. Uh, the the uh, Haredi, non-Haredi divide has always been there. As a matter of fact, I didn't anticipate this question, but I, I keep a rather in extensive archive of authentic material. I brought one along just in case this might come up. Uh, what I'm, I'm holding here, I think it's an original. You see what I'm holding here? Yeah, it's an original, yes. This is HaKneset HaRishona. 9th of May, 1950. Signed by Dr. Yosef Borg, Sgan Yosef Rosh HaKneset. He was uh, one of the leaders of... Uh, Call the Mizrahi with the Mizrahi then, yes. And uh, uh, he writes a letter to Rav Rashi Herzog, and this is the actual letter, in which he says, among other things, Hamudubar b'shichru b'chorei yeshiva me'agiyus. We are talking about the uh, exemption for yeshiva students from uh, being drafted into the army. All right, we will continue with this part coming up at JM in the AM. It's Rabbi Beryl Wine and Ambassador Yehuda Avner in a conversation. Um, very interesting. A lot of interesting topics and uh, a real uh, history of an era through the uh, eyes and words of somebody who lived it. Uh, Ambassador Yehuda Avner with Rabbi Beryl Wine uh, during our Monday morning nine days format here at JM in the AM. Information about all, <coughs> excuse me, all of Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Of course, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And uh, we are uh, always highly recommending Rabbi Wine's lectures to keep us informed and to teach us, not just during the nine days, but of course, all year round. So 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. Later on, about an hour from now, I'll play for you the eulogy that my father gave after the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, one of the, in my opinion, one of the most comprehensive and amazing historical uh, biographies uh, ever um, presented, especially in, in just 25 minutes. So that'll be about an hour from now here at JM in the AM. Um, that's all coming up. And um, plenty of reminders about what's going on this week. Obviously, the nine days format will continue till the end of the week. And then on Sunday, on Tisha B'Av, two major events that we are associated with. Number one, New Springville Jewish Center, the incredible Tisha B'Av program, first Kinnis, and then lectures on Tisha B'Av starting at 9.15 in the morning on Sunday. That's happening on Sunday at the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. And then Sunday night, 7 p.m., Project Inspire. Charlie Harari and the Project Inspire staff with an amazing two-hour presentation to close out the fast. It's an amazing way to wrap up Tisha B'Av. We are, uh, again, 
uh, presenting it. Make sure to be tuned in here at the Nahum Siegel Network. It is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com on the Nahum Siegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Galay Tzal in the background will do our news from Israel coming up. Want to say hi to our friends up at Camp Misora. An amazing and incredible visiting day yesterday to Dina and Ari Katz and the, and the wonderful staff, campers, everybody who was up there yesterday. What a delight to spend the day in Guilford, New York and on the Camp Misora campus. Continued success up there. Ali Einhara. Uh, Galay Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast is next. We say Boker Tov from Jam Nam. גלי צהל השעה שתיים, כאן אופק אלברט עם מה שקורה עכשיו. עיני העולם נשואות בשעה זו לאווירת פינלנד, הלסינקי, שם תחל באיחור פסגת נשיא רוסיה פוטין ונשיא ארצות הברית טראמפ. פוטין הוא זה שמביא לעיכוב בלוח הזמנים, משום שנחת בהלסינקי 30 דקות אחרי המועד המתוכנן. כתבתנו יערה גם איחור היא מוסיפה כי כבר כעת מתקיימות הפגנות ברחבי העיר, שעניינן מדיניות האקלים של טראמפ ושליטת רוסיה בחצי העיקרים. העימות בין שרי הקבינט המדיני-ביטחוני, השרה גילה גמליאל, אומרת כי היא מתנגדת לבדיקת פוליגרף למניעת הדלפות מהישיבות, ומוסיפה בריאיון אצל יעל דן כי ישנה אפשרות לפטר שרים מן הקבינט. ברגע שזה יהפוך לדרישה בקרב חברי הקבינט, זה יהפוך לכלי ניגוח פוליטי אל מול השרים. אם אין אמון בשר כזה או אחר בתוך הקבינט, יש את האפשרות לפטר אותו. ראש הממשלה בנימין נתניהו הגיע הבוקר לביקור בשדרות ולמפגש עם ראשי הרשויות באזור, זאת לאחר סוף השבוע הקשה שעבר עוטף עזה ובעקבות הדיון בקבינט בדבר התגובה הצבאית הרצויה למיגור בלוני התבערה. אלון דוידי, ראש עיריית שדרות, אמר בגלי צה"ל בתום המפגש עם נתניהו על כולם לזכור שיישובי העוטף הם חלק ממדינת ישראל. ראש הממשלה קיבל מאיתנו גיבוי מלא על כך שמדינת ישראל יכולה לעשות כל דבר שתרגיש על מנת להשיב את השקט לאזור. אסור לנו לחזור לאיזושהי תחושה שהאזור הזה למעשה יוצא מהמשוואה של המשימות של מדינת ישראל, ואני שמח שראש הממשלה הגיע בצורה באמת מיידית. הקטל באתרי הבנייה, איאד זיאדאת, שבנו מוחמד נהרג בקריסת מנהרת השיבה בגלבוע ביום שישי, אומר בשיחה עם רינו צרור, חברות הבנייה הגדולות אשמות אכן מטילות את האחריות על העובדים הפשוטים. הם עצרו את הנהג, אבל יש מעל הנהג את הקצין בטיחות, את הבודק כבל, את בעל הבית של ליכטר ואת הבעל של פלואל בנק. למה רק עצרו את הנהג? הנהג אמרו, תפעיל, תפעיל. כל הזמן מחפשים על הכי קטן בחברה, הכי חולי, הכי חלשה. שמים את הכל להפיק עליה. מחברת PSP שבבעלות שיכון ובינוי ואלקטרה נמסר בתגובה, אנו משתתפים בצער המשפחה ונבצע בדיקה מעמיקה מול הקבלן המבצע, קבוצת אורון, ובהתאם יופקו הלקחים. מקבוצת אורון לא נמסרה תגובה. התוכנית להקמת טורבינות רוח ברמת הגולן עברה לאישור סופי של ועדת השרים לענייני דיור. זהו מיזם ייצור החשמל הירוק הגדול בישראל עד כה, והוא צפוי לספק זרם לכ-60 אלף משקי בית בצפון הארץ על ידי 42 טורבינות בגובה 85 מטרים. כתבנו מתי ענבי מוסיף כי העברת התוכנית לאישור קבינט הדיור התאפשרה לאחר שהושגו הבנות בין היזם לבין רשות הטבע והגנים, שביקשה להבטיח את שלום בעלי הכנף המרחפים באזור. 
תחזית מזג האוויר, הכבדה ניכרת בעומס החום ויהיה חם מהרגיל בערים ובפנים הארץ. מחר עומס חום כבד עד קיצוני ברוב חלקי הארץ. ולסיום, ביום שאחרי גביע העולם בכדורגל, הכוכב הפורטוגלי קריסטיאנו רונלדו עושה את יומו הראשון בביתו החדש, יובנטוס, שכשעשרות אלפי אוהדים קיבלו את פניו בטורינו. לפני זמן קצר סיים מונלדו את הבדיקות הרפואיות ובשעה הקרובה יוצג רשמית במועדון הפייר האיטלקי. הפורטוגלי כזכור חתם בשבוע שעבר לארבע שנים בשורות אלופת איטליה תמורת 30 מיליון אירו לעונה. אלה החדשות שעורך מירון ששון. So uh, you'll be able to hear the context of the upcoming conversation between Rai Berlwine and, uh, and the ambassador, Yehuda Avner, about the, um, about the um, issue of the draft in Israel, etc. So that's all coming up. We rewound a bit just to give everybody the uh, ability to catch up, so to speak. Um, I remind you, as I said earlier, Tisha B'Av is Sunday. The observance of Tisha B'Av is Sunday. And we will be presenting the uh, New Springville Jewish Center and their Tisha B'Av program beginning at 9.15 in the morning, just a few minutes after JM, the, excuse me, a few minutes after JM Sunday. And uh, then at night, Project Inspire, of course, led by Charlie Harari, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. An amazing way to wrap up Tisha B'Av, so you'll have that, that opportunity as well. And we've been informed... Um, although we announced last Tisha B'Av, this comes from our friends at the Isaiah Wall, uh, although we announced that the uh, last Tisha B'Av at the Isaiah Wall, that it was our 40th consecutive and last mincha, uh, when Lenore and Glenn returned from Israel a week ago, Lenore insisted we cannot remain silent and must return again this Tisha B'Av, so we will be back. Your loyal listenership is one of the important steady bases of support for our Tisha B'Av prayer service. Kindly let your listeners know throughout the week. Perhaps we'll see you again. As well, thanks in advance. So yes, sure enough, it is Hamas and their incendiary kites and balloons burning thousands of acres of precious Israeli farmland and nature reserves near Gaza. Iranian troops and proxies from Syria inching closer to Israel to Golan. Palestinian terror on civilians and soldiers and brazen acts of anti-Semitism in Europe and constant pressure by BDS hate mongers here in the U.S. It's for those reasons. That we are continuing the annual Tisha B'Av tradition of a prayer service at the Isaiah Wall opposite the UN. The traditional mincha with Torah reading led by Rabbi Avi Weiss will focus on our brethren in danger in Israel and throughout the world. Other speakers will add their perspectives. Bring your uh, talis, tefillin, sidurim, everybody. You know where. It's happening on 1st Avenue between 42nd and 43rd Streets in New York City this coming Sunday. Again, this coming Sunday, Tisha B'Av Prayer Service, Isaiah Wall. On the 1st Avenue, the west side of the street, between 42nd and 43rd Streets. So we've basically we've basically covered your entire Tisha B'Av day. After JM Sunday with Matis, you make sure to watch the... Um, the uh, Kinnis and Tisha B'Av observance and lectures from the New Springville Jewish Center. You can watch it at NahumSiegel.com. 
then uh, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall and in Manhattan, 1st Avenue and 42nd, between 42nd and 43rd Streets. And then um, at night, 7 p.m., Charlie Harari, Project Inspire, uh, for that amazing program to uh, end Tisha above. Can't do much better than that. Rabbi Barrel Wine, uh, we've got about 15 minutes left to this lecture of um, a conversation, actually, between Rabbi Barrel Wine, Rabbi Yehuda Avner, the and, and Ambassador Yehuda Avner. Here it is at JM in the AM. Me over because they're looking for so you, uh, the man on my left. To my left was General Brown, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, he was flirting with Barbara Walters on my right, <laughs> flirting behind my back. <laughs> honest truth. And uh, at one point, General Brown cranes his neck, leans over to mark my place card, and he says to me, you do hard, you're not eating with us tonight. Uh, whereupon, as if on cue, a butler stepped forward and he placed before me an extravaganza of color that consisted of a base of lettuce as thick as a Bible. On top of that was a mound of diced fruits. On top of that was a blob of cottage cheese. <laughs> and on top of that was a swish of whipped cream. So the thingamajig stood about a foot high. And compared to everybody else's deep brown roasted pheasant, it glittered like fireworks, and Barbara Walters began to applaud. And this caught the attention of President Ford at an adjacent table, who leaned over to Rabin, whispered something in his ear, and Rabin whispered something back into his, whereupon the president literally he took his, his glass of wine, stood up and called out to me, Happy birthday, young fella! Whereupon uh, <laughs> the whole of the state dining room rose to its feet and they began singing, Happy birthday, do you do her? <laughs> and I was mortified. <laughs> and, and after dinner, I asked Rabin, Lama Tamatuloza Yomo Ledichili. He said, and I, I quote him verbatim and all, seriously, he said, Is <laughs> Is that the one you read? That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. You know, uh, today uh, we all feel that somehow uh, the country is divided. The Israeli uh, political spectrum is too fractured. Uh, is that really more so, or it's just, uh, the, you know, every generation thinks that uh, it's the best of times and the worst of times? Uh, I think it was always that way. I think the the uh, the uh, part of the problem, not part of the problem, but part of it is that Israel has become too successful, and it doesn't have the pressures that it once felt, and therefore we can allow ourselves the luxuries of, uh, of being, uh, you know, slicing the pie and slicing the pie and slicing it further. But uh, generally speaking, from what I remember, uh, when I was a rover in Miami Beach, for instance, uh, all the Israeli leaders came, and I had a chance to talk to them, from uh, Dr. Berg uh, to Menachem Porsche to Rabin and to Yigal Alon, 
uh, I, uh, you know, I don't feel that it's any different today uh, than, than it was then, except that uh, probably there's more uh, communication and publicity today than there ever was before. What's your opinion, you? My opinion is, uh, it's not an opinion. I, I, I remember vividly the, uh, the, 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 the inner within society uh, was much more acute, potent than it is today. That is, uh, there is a dialogue taking place today. It's a very noisy one. It's a very untidy one. It's a very raucous one. But nevertheless, uh, but in those days of yore, we were talking about my pie before, there were literally war, the big war was between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And it was Begin who broke that wall down. Who put Begin into office in 1970? It was a Sephardim. Uh, he spoke for them. Uh, and and they, they, they felt uh, a, a, a bond with this Ashkenazi from, from Warsaw. Uh, the the uh, Haredi, non-Haredi divide has always been there. As a matter of fact, I didn't anticipate this question. But uh, I, I keep a rather in extensive archive of authentic material. And I, I brought one along just in case this might come up. Uh, what I'm, I'm holding here, I think it's an original. You see what I'm holding here? Yeah, it's an original, yes. This is Hakneset Arishona. 9th of May, 1950. Signed by Dr. Yosef Borg, Sgan Yosef Knesset. He was uh, one of the leaders of Poland uh, Mizrahi, with the Mizrahi then, yes. And uh, uh, he writes a letter to Rav Rashi Herzog, and this is the actual letter, in which he says, among other things, we are talking about the uh, exemption for yeshiva students from uh, being drafted into the army. In 1950, continues to I would prefer that the yeshiva students should be in the army uh, together with the uh, dati, the religious uh, students, and if they were in the army, they would strengthen the religious and Torah values of all concerned. But however, now, many have entered the yeshiva that are not really sincere in their studies and But just when they became uh, of draft age, they entered the yeshivas. Out of this will come a desecration of God's name. And uh, therefore, now, uh, Tifa by Herzog 
also writes to uh, he writes to Ben Gurion on the subject. Yeah, and uh, he pleads on behalf of the Bachar Yeshiva to which Ben Gurion answers. Now we have gone up now to 1958, and this is what he answers. Ben Gurion says, as far as the drafting of Yeshiva students. It's not that simple a matter. Ten years ago, there were very few that, uh, that I met that were in the army. <laughs> that were ready for it. Yes. In the yeshiva, there were very few yes. uh, exemptions. But I must uh, state that the students of the yeshiva defended Jerusalem just like everyone else did during the war. He said, now there are many more yeshiva students. And he says, I don't know. It could be that some of them are only there to dodge the draft. I want to believe that that's not correct. So he said that uh, the non-Jewish uh, nations of the world don't need the yeshiva students. They don't need Jews in the army. But, but we are the Jewish state. We don't have anybody else. And we need only Jews in the army. So we need them. So you said that's the great moral question of whether one should sit and be protected and learn and the other one should risk or even, God forbid, lose one's life on defending the home. To which you would have now adds, Right, exactly. That's the point I wanted to make with you as well. That uh, 60 years later, they say we have not solved that problem from either point of view. This has been a wonderful hour of you. You do that? It was wonderful. And, and I'm, I am certain that uh, we could go on for longer, but I promise that this would only be an hour. Now, there were people that submitted questions. This is, uh, did anyone submit a question? Good, Kenny. <laughs> yeah, so would you please bring them up and we'll, we'll have a few minutes of questions and answers, and then we'll have, there'll be a minion for Myriv afterwards as well.
how would Menachem Begin all of Asholem handle the current situation with Iran and Syria? Well, no comment. <laughs> the only thing that we could say is that uh, it's very hard to extrapolate from past uh, to the present well and to the current and uh, the situation today. It's uh, unique, but not unique, and therefore uh, it's hard to say. How important are the food simonim symbols of Rosh Hashanah? Well, if they're, well, if they're important to you, they're important. They're very important. Uh, as Menachem Begin would not tolerate the Jew fighting another Jew, how would he react to the Sinaschinim exhibited during uh, the elections and the chief rabbinate and the current Knesset? Etc. So that, that that really touches upon what we've discussed. Uh, we think it's terrible today, and it is, but it's less terrible than it was. It, uh, you know, it's hard 100%. for you to believe it. I, I, I remember the Panavizharov came to Chicago in 1947, 46 he came, and he spoke to us in the yeshiva, and he said then. He said, there are seven Jews that are, the British have in jail today. It was then they were cleaning up the lechi. And they, they condemned them to death. And he said, I want to tell you that those seven Jews will drive the British out of Eretz Yisrael. And he said, if I had Jews that were that determined to build the Torah Medina, we would have a Torah Medina, but we don't have that determination. And then he said, there's going to be a Medina, there's going to be a Jewish state. And he said, uh, 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 frighteningly, he said, it's possible that you'll sit in jail for being a Shomer Shabbos. That's what he said. Because he said there are such elements. But he said, that's not the point. The point is that we have to build Torah and we have to build the state and that we have to raise ourselves from the ashes of the Holocaust. But he was willing to say, I remember it, I heard it in my ears, that there's a possibility that the state, because in, uh, if, uh, if the communists, uh, you know, if Stalin was here, that's what happened in Russia. Right. So they were afraid that it could happen here too. That never went that far, thank God. I want to say that the anti-religion of my youth is not here is today. Not here today. Absolutely. Uh, today it's, you know, uh, he said it, Beryl Katz and Elmson very well, there's a great Zionist leader. He said, we wanted to raise a generation of Apikorsim, and we raised a generation of Ameorits. We raised a generation of ignoramuses. But today, it, most of the Israeli public wants to be Jewish. But you know, the Jews don't want to let them. That's part of the problem. You know, if we sold automobiles the way we sold Torah, we'd be bankrupt like General Motors, right? And in spite of it, there's never been the amount of Torah, the never amount of learning, the amount of observance. And you have kibbutzim all over the country today, left-wing kibbutzim that have synagogue services that made a kosher kitchen. Uh, all sorts of revolution. There's a quiet revolution going on in the country. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is not what it was before. I really want to thank you, Rabbi Yudah. It was wonderful.
and I want to thank everyone for coming. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine, with uh, an amazing presentation, a conversation with uh, Ambassador Yehuda Avner, uh, for whom we have so much respect, and we miss him. Uh, and it's one of the uh, lectures in the series of conversations. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine uh, here at JM in the AM. A reminder, coming up at 8 o'clock, I'll play for you my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is always a an annual um, an annual hit, frankly. So we'll do that coming up at 8 a.m. It's Monday here at JM in the AM on this July 16th. Happy birthday to those who are celebrating their birthday on July 16th. The fourth day of Menachem Av, the year 5778. 75 degrees, 85% humidity, winds are south at 3 miles per hour, partly cloudy, a high of 90. Scattered thunderstorms tonight, low 77. Tomorrow, some afternoon thunderstorms and a high of 88. Yerushalayim right now at 87 up in Guilford, New York, where we had the most amazing visiting day yesterday at Camp Missouri, 66 degrees. Here we're at 75 in New York City as we say good morning at JM and the AM. We did have an amazing day yesterday and a big, big shout-out to Dina and Ari Katz and their incredible staff and all the wonderful people up at Camp Missouri. It was just an, a great day, and uh, they are doing a remarkable job up there. Kolaka vote. Uh, I want to thank the listener who just pointed out on the app that we've got an excellent show today. Yeah, we, we'd like to think so and very much uh, appreciate the comment as we, um, as we try our best to provide as interesting a conversation as interesting a lecture each and every uh, day of the nine days here at JM and the AM. A uh, reminder, the uh, documentary Roja that Project Witness has uh, brought to our attention, has put out there, uh, has some um, showings during the nine days that you should be aware of. The brand new documentary is uh, being shown for women, women and girls tonight at the Yeshiva of Spring Valley, 121 College Road at 8 o'clock. Um, for the general public in Flatbush at Kahal B'nai Avraham Yaakov, 2701 Avenue N, tonight at 8. Tomorrow night and Tuesday, uh, Tuesday night in Lakewood, Yeshiva Orchos Chaim on Avenue S. Excuse me. Yeshiva Orchos Chaim at 410 Oberlin Avenue South, starting at 8 p.m. in Lakewood tomorrow night. In the five towns tomorrow night, the young Israel of Lawrence Cedarhurst. Wednesday in the Catskills for women and girls, three shows at Camp Tubby in Woodburn. In Borough Park for women and girls Wednesday night at a Terrace Golda and for men at Lipschitz Hall. And then Thursday, the Young Israel of Kew Gardens Hills shows it at 8 p.m. And down in Baltimore, the Base Yaakov High School on Smith Avenue at 7.30 p.m. Information about all of this, projectwitness.org. Again, projectwitness.org. Also, Friday morning, Dr. Fagy Zakheim was with us with a reminder that the annual Catskills Nine Days Conference from the United Task Force for Children and Families at Risk, happens tomorrow. Tomorrow, 1.30 p.m. at the Fallsview Estates Shul. Is giving our children everything really giving them nothing? Children, values, and us. Dr. David Pelkovitz, Rabbi Mordechai Besser, Hindi Klein, Dr. Faye Zakheim, uh, all happening at the Fallsview Estates Shul tomorrow starting at 1.30 p.m. And it's brought to you by all the United Task Force member agencies, and there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them. Information, it's, um, let's see, 347-666-3274, 347 
666-326-3274. And again, a reminder, uh, this is happening tomorrow, 1.30 p.m. at the Fallsview Estate Shul on Fallsview Drive in Fallsburg, New York. The annual Catskills Nine Days Conference. Keep it in mind for tomorrow. should be very interesting. Certainly the topics are uh, very interesting. And then, of course, remember... We are providing an amazing and incredible Tisha B'Av, very inspiring Tisha B'Av for everybody. On Tisha B'Av morning, we have the privilege of hosting uh, the live Tisha B'Av program after JM Sunday. It starts at 9.15 from the New Springville Jewish Center on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island, and you're invited. All men and women are invited. It's free to be there at the New Springville Jewish Center. Kinos explained, Rabbi Elio, Sun and Shine, Shlomo Schwartz, and Rabbi Moshe Faskowitz. And then, thoughts about Tisha B'Av with Mayor Simcha Siegel, Rabbi Aaron Raps, and then Mincha at 145. You can watch the entire thing at NahumSiegel.com and, of course, hear it through all of our audio sources. Information, 718-983-8063, 718-983-8063. And, of course, we'll continue to remind you as we get closer and closer uh, during the uh, week. Uh, Sunday night, Project Inspire. Stepping up and taking responsibility. We need you. Tish Above live streaming talk show featuring Charlie Harari kicks off at 7 p.m. with the Project Inspire staff. Informa- obviously, NahumSiegel.com is one of the places you could see it. Uh, information, uh, radio at ProjectInspire.com. Radio at ProjectInspire.com. Dot com. And then as we keep telling you, the following week after Tish Above, just so many amazing events and so much incredible summer programming coming up. Uh, we'll go through the entire lineup a little later on. There's so much happening right after Tisha B'Av. And one other thing. There is, again, there is a Tisha B'Av outdoor mincha for Israel and Jews in danger worldwide happening this Sunday at 2 p.m. The Isaiah Wall, 1st Avenue, 43rd Street, opposite the United Nations. Again, 1st Avenue, 43rd Street. We start mincha at 2 p.m., Make sure you're there to make a statement to Davin Mincha and to uh, spend your Tisha B'Av in an effective manner with your brothers, with our brothers and sisters in mind. Again, this Sunday, 2 p.m., Mincha, 1st Avenue, 43rd Street, New York City. 7.30 in the morning, JM in the AM. I want to thank those who are traveling back from anywhere on a Monday who are tuned in. Thank you very much for that. I want to thank all those of you around the world who are tuned in. Thank you very much for that, and I remind you to please let everybody you know know about our special nine days programming. It is pretty amazing, and coming up at 8 o'clock, 30 minutes from now, my father's Hespid of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is always a big hit each and every year, and for good reason. Um, Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. It says in Bereshis, Nasa Adam Bitsalmenu Kidmusenu. Hashem said, Let us make man in God's image. As we understand, each of us is a living, breathing Tselamalokim. We are all in the image of God. In order for us to do our Avodas HaKodesh, the service of Hashem, we have to have instilled in us a great sense of self a healthy self-esteem. The Chavetz Chaim once went into a yeshiva and he said 
Napoleon said to his soldiers, whoever does not believe that he could grow to be a general can also not be a regular soldier. The Chavetz Chaim continued, whoever doesn't believe that he could become a Godel Ador or that she could become a great Torah leader also cannot be a Yeshiva Bachar or a Beis Yaakov student because an individual is obligated to believe that they could reach the highest level, they could reach to near perfection in their daily lives. We have a similar idea expressed in the letters of the Chazonish, that the in-between person, the individual that feels that he's not great, but yet he's not bad. The Ramban writes on the Pasuk, Betach Hashem, trust in Hashem, Tov, and do good. It comes to tell us that the bitachon, that a person will trust in Hashem, will help him to do all of the mitzvahs. Like it says, that the individual be helped and supported in doing good. It's comparable to two enemies. If one of them begins to feel bad, and their spirit falls. They feel that perhaps they won't be matzliach, that they will not be successful in war. Certainly, that person will lose. If every general before war enters into a state of depression or feels bad that maybe they will not be able to win, certainly the war is already lost. The same is true in Avodos Hashem. A person always has to try to be inspired, to lift themselves up, to know that their Eurydice and the Philos that many times in life, a person may feel that they're going down. But in truth, it may be a Yerida L'Tzorech Aliyah. It may be that just today, I feel a little bit down. But because of that, tomorrow, I'm going to shoot for the stars. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning physic. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. My thanks to Rabbi Goldwasser, of course. Nine days format Monday. This is Rabbi Beryl Wine and his conversation with Rabbi Benji Levine. And um, I, I just, I, I, I cannot wait to hear this in detail. Uh, I've only had, I've only heard little excerpts of it. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine. What can I say? His lectures are amazing. Information about his entire lecture series, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. And of course, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine, Rabbi Benji Levine in conversation. This is JM in the AM. Shavua Tov and good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. And uh, you'll be part of a conversation between... Uh, Two old friends, one older and one not that old yet. I'm the older. Uh, Rabbi Benji Levine is an institution unto himself, and uh, we're going to discuss a few uh, ideas and uh, reminiscences, all of which I think will be uh, relevant and important to us. Uh, you're an American originally? Yes, born in Seattle, Washington. How'd you get to Seattle? Uh, that's the first question that people always ask me. 
They say, <laughs> the second question is, how did you get out of Seattle? <laughs> That's the second question people ask me. Um, the first question people usually ask me is, how is it that the grandson of Herbario Levine is talks it? with an American accent? So I tell them it's not because I was a good student in an American old pond. Uh, my father, Reb Chamiankiv, the oldest son of Verbaria, <coughs> was born in Yerushalayim. He was one of the Iluyim of Yerushalayim. My father's Chavrusa, growing up in Yerushalayim, was Reb Shleimazam and Oyabach. They grew up together in Eitzchayim Yeshiva, right next to the Shuk. And um, twice my grandfather sent my father to Chutzlaretz. Once he sent him as a young boy to learn in Poland. That was very unusual to send the yeshiva bacher from Yerushalayim to go Poland. study in Poland. It means felt yeshivas in Yerushalayim, they had to go to Poland. But my grandfather, Rebaya, left his home at a very young age. His uh, dream was to meet as many gedolim as he could and learn from them, and eventually to go to Eretz Yisrael. So on the way to Eretz Yisrael, he studied in some of the great yeshivas in Europe, in Valozhin, by Rabbi Zalman in Slutsk, and by Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibovich before he went to Kamenitz. Before Kamenitz. In Halusk. Right. Right. <clears throat> he had to leave. Right. And he had to leave. And uh, nobody really knew the reason why he had to leave. But the reason he had to leave was that you used to stay by people. They didn't have dormitories. And uh, one of the, uh, the people that he stayed by took an interest in him as a young man, a very bright young fellow, and tried to talk him into going to study in university. And my grandfather was afraid that this guy would eventually convince him to go to university. But he didn't want to tell Rabbarach Bear why he's leaving, because he knew Rabbarach Bear would have a kapeda, he would get upset with him. So, and, this, and he had a karasatov, the man he ate by that person or whatever, he stayed by him. So he told Rabbi Baruch Be'er that he had to leave. He didn't tell them the reason. But he promised him that if one day he has a son, he'll send, send him to study him. by him. So you're the guy. So, no, my guy. father was the guy. So my father didn't want to leave Yerushalayim. He was very close to Rav Cook, <coughs> excuse me, to Rabbi Sezalman. And he didn't want to leave Yerushalayim. But my grandfather said, I've got to pay my debt to my Rebbe. You're going to Poland. So one of the wonderful stories of my father was that before he got on the train to leave Eretz Yisrael, he saw some stones on the ground. And he gathered them then together, put them in his pocket, so that wherever he'll be in Poland, he'll have the stones of Eretz Yisrael. Before the train started, he sat down, took out the stones, and started to cry. And he said, Mela, I have to go, Kibbutz my father wants me to go to learn Torah. You're allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael. But you stones, he said, why do you have to leave Eretz Yisrael? <laughs> so he opened the window of the train, and he threw them back. They shouldn't leave Eretz Yisrael. And uh, he spent two years by Rabbarach Ber. He was one of his prized Talmidim. And uh, he came back to Eretz Yisrael. And then my mother came from London. Her father was a rub in the east end of London, also Levine. I'm Levine from both sides. Whenever I had to fill out forms as a kid in America, and it said mother's maiden name, I always got the form sent back to me, <laughs> underlined maiden name, yeah. and I had to send it back. That was my mother's maiden name. But um, anyway, so uh, my mother came to Eretz Yisrael. My two grandparents, my two grandfathers, had written to each other, corresponded with each other. My father came from Poland. My mother came from London. They were married and lived here for two years in Mishalayim. 
And then my grandfather said, take your wife to see her family. She hasn't seen them in two years. To London. So they went to London. And visiting London was Reb Meir Berlin, Bar Ilan, uh-huh. the son of the Nitziv, the head of the Mizrahi. And he knew my father because he used to test the boys in, in the Yitzchayim Yeshiva. Yeshiva. <clears throat> it was a different world then. A different, I told this over to a number of Haredim, all the Haredim. Believe, believe they it. said, Rameh Berlin? Yeah, what do you mean? It was Mizrahi. What do you mean? His brother, Reb Chaim Berlin, was a godel. Yeah. I heard from Reb Mordechai Kirschblum, who yeah. was his assistant years ago, that Reb Yosheber Salavechik said about Reb Meir Berlin, if you're looking at one of the Gedolim of this generation, it's Reb Meir Berlin. It's true. But they don't know him. They know him Barilan, yeah, Meir Barilan. But he saw my father in London, and he, he used to test him. He knew my father. Yeah. So he said to him, I would never tell you to leave Eretz Yisrael, but if you're here, I want to send you to America for a few months. Rebmeir Berlin liked to send young, budding Talmidah Chachamim to Chutzlaretz Lafitz Chorus Eretz Yisrael. He was uh, himself <coughs> uh, for a period of time with Yeshiva Shabbat Yitzvah Right. And he made the Teachers Institute That's there. That's right. He was a man of vision always. A, a, a great man of vision. Of vision. Yeah. So uh, he sent my father. My mother said, go. I'll stay here with uh, my parents. I'm not in the street. And you'll go for a few months. You'll come back, and then we'll go back to Eretz Yisrael. And so my father went. World War II broke out. And for two years, my parents were separated. My father needed to get a green card to stay in America. Uh, Dr. Revel wanted my father to be the boychen before Mendel Zaks in, in YU. Yeah. And my father was looking for a place to go because the law was, in order to get the green card, you had to travel outside of the States to and an American come embassy, come back. Yeah. He went to Seattle, crossed into Vancouver, came back into Seattle, and uh, became the rub there. Uh, the rub who was there of the Bikr Choylem, Shul. He was... Very involved, Vogelenter. He was very involved with that solo overseas. Right, right. My father started as the Rosh Hashiva. He started you know, Yeshiva. Rabbi Yankov also ended up. Rabbi Yankov was also. He had there. a million assistant rabbis in order to help them get green cards. That's right. So they were like, the shul had. I think at one time he told me Rabbi Vogelenter he had ten or eleven assistant rabbis, and the <laughs> immigration authorities came to him. Well, they said, I mean, the whole congregation is 200 people. <laughs> he, he said, we give individual attention. <laughs> anyway, my father started a yeshiva in Seattle, right. the Chaimoise yeshiva. yeshiva yeah. Many of them later on uh, became Rabbi Luban, uh, Volk, uh, and who was the others? Uh, um, there, there were quite a number who became Rabbanim all over oh, America right. afterwards. Who would never have gone into learning had if my father been, not uh, been at that time? So that's how you get. And so your mother came. And my to mother, Seattle. two years, came eventually over to Seattle. And that's how you came to Seattle. And I was born in Seattle, and in '47, and then in '49, uh, Rav Henkin wanted my father to take a position in Jersey City, New Jersey. Oh. It was once a beautiful community, and um, uh, what happened was this is a wonderful story. This is a story that I, I told. I just want to tell you, Rabbi Levine is the great. The greatest raconteur <laughs> since Rabbi Wine. <laughs> I don't come anywhere near you. Go ahead. But uh, this happens to be a wonderful story that I once told over, and some rabbi told this over, and someone heard it in the shul where he told it over, and I got a call from Chicken Soup for the Jewish Soul, uh-huh. and they said, could we use this story in our book? So I said, Bevakasha. But it's a beautiful story, and... Um, the story is that my father came to Jersey in 49. The Rav, who had passed away right before, 
was in, from the old Rabbonim, Rav Bloch. Yes. He was a Rav, not from the Telzer Bloch. No, the different Bloch. He was a Rav in Boisk, where yeah. Rav Cook was, was a Rav. A Rav. Yeah. And he had passed away. And uh, Rav Henkin said to my father, go drive out for the Shtel. I want you to go there. So there were about 100 Rabbonim who tried out at the time. At the time, it was very, very lucrative. So another story before that story, very shortly, is that they called in the Rabbanim. Everyone had his go at it, Shabbos or whatever. And then they called a few Rabbanim back. And the Shabbos, they called my father back. They made a mistake and called another Rav also back at the same time. <laughs> so my father saw that the president of the shul didn't know what to do. Yeah. So he went over to him and he said, I see you have a problem. You want me to take care of it? So the president <laughs> said, please, if you can help me. So when it came time for the Rav to give the drasha, my father got up on the bimah and he introduced the other Rav. And he told everyone what a great man the other Rav was, that any community that would get somebody like him would be blessed. The man has all the talents and all the abilities. And my father called him up to speak. Well, when the people in the shul saw that, they said, we want him. <laughs> but the story that they told over afterwards was, is a really a beautiful story. The, the Rebetzin of this Rabbi Bloch was an old woman, and she lived in a boydom. It was like three stories up. I know every stair because I fell down the stairs once, and I could count every stair. And every Friday, my father would go to visit the old Rebetzin. He would take me with him to see if she needed anything, and to tell her what was going on in the community. One Friday we came there, I was a little kid, and uh, my father had to go pay a shiva call. So he said to Rebetzin Bloch, he said, do you mind if Benji stays with you for a little while, and I'll come afterwards and get him. So he went, she gave me some soda, her son-in-law, I made Friedman soda. Uh, good sodas, they were the old seltzer yeah, bottles. Oh, yeah, that used yeah. to Anyway, and so she gave me some soda and cookies. And then she told me this story. And she said to me, I, I want you to remember this your entire life. She said, when your father came here, of course it was very hard for me to see some other Rav in my husband's place after all the years. She said, your father came and they chose him to be the Rav. And they brought him in and they told him, we have chosen you to be the next rabbi. And your father said, I can't give you an answer right now. Let me give you an answer in a week or so. She says, and nobody knows why your father said that except me. She said to me, because then your father came to see me. And he said to me, I know that you were always the first lady of the community. It's going to be very, very hard for you to see somebody else in your husband's place. They've asked me now to be the Rav, but I didn't give them an answer. I first came to ask your permission. If you agree... I will go back and take the position. But if you feel in any way you don't want me to be here, I will leave right now. So the old rabbits, and she said, I started to cry. And I said, that you should come and ask my permission. Who looks at me now? Who comes to tell me what's going on now? She says, and you ask me my permission. She said, not only did I want you to stay, but I feel as if my own son is taking over the position. Right. She said, only then did your father go back, and he needed the parnosa. And he took the position, she said, and for the first year he didn't see, sit in the rough seat. She said, that's something, and, and I heard it from her, it's something that remained with him my entire life, because that's the type of person my father was. That's right, and, that's, and he got that from, <coughs> your, from your grandfather, naturally. He grew up in my grandfather's home. So how long were you in Jersey City? 
My father was in Jersey City from 1949 to 1969. Yeah, I remember your father in Jersey City. Really? Yeah. Mm. And uh, I was then in Miami Beach, but once in a while I came to the New York area. I, I remember Revelavine in Jersey City. The Jersey City was then already starting to... It was falling. It was going yeah, it was down, down and down. It got weaker and weaker. Right. And then, so how did you get, uh, you didn't stay in Jersey City. What, so, no. What, what, what yeshiva did you go to in In 69, I went to YU in yeah. 64 to college, graduated in 68. And <clears throat> what happened was is that since like around 1959, 1960, yeah. my parents would send me in the summer to live with my grandfather. To in Yerushalayim. Now you with Rebaria. With Rebaria. Rebaria had a palace, plenty of room. A palace, yeah. A <laughs> tiny little room. Unbelievable. That was two by four. You wouldn't believe if you saw it. I mean, I saw it once with my grandfather-in-law, also Levine from also Detroit. Also Levine, right, from Detroit. Literally, without exaggeration, the furniture was orange crates. And they were, you know, it was just... Uh, the orange crates were a luxus. That's right. That <laughs> was a luxury. It was unbelievable. <clears throat> so and always, my so father always said that the book at Sadiq in our time yeah. should have been written about my grandmother. Right. As great as he was, she was much greater. Because she had to put up with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She was the woman behind the, the Tzaddik. Absolutely. She was a great Tzaddikist. You cannot be a Tzaddik without a Tzaddikist. You no can't question be a rogue without a Rabbanit. And, no question right. about it. But and, I and came, back, you know, back of every successful man is an astonished mother-in-law. <laughs> But uh, that's true. So what happened? So you so went I, for the summers. So I came in the summers. Now, you got to understand, I'm an American kid. I mean, I grew up in a home. Yeah. My father sat and learned Torah the whole day. There was, you felt in my father's presence, Kedusha. But I was an American kid. It's the <laughs> 50s. I want to hear how many home runs Mickey Mantle is hitting, right? <laughs> I mean, and I go to Eretz Yisrael. I come to Eretz Yisrael. And uh, I, I know I'm going to live with the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim. Now, Coming into his house the first time is something that I will never forget. Because my brothers were there that summer learning in Eretz Yisrael. And I walked into the room, this tiny little room, and I heard all these stories about my grandfather and everything. And I walked in the room, and my grandfather ran over to me. And he, first he met a Shechiona with the Shem. Wow. And then he said to me, what Yosef says when they brought Binyamin to Mitzrayim. Yeah, he said to me, And I claim that my entire life, any successes I've had in my life, come from that bracha of Chen Elokim Yochnecha I have to tell you an interesting story. I am one day in Los Angeles, and I'm introduced to a very famous Jewish actor, called Mike Burstein, yeah. you know, on the Jewish stage. Right. His, his mother was Lillian Lux. His father was Pesach Burstein. They were very, very it's famous on the Yiddish theater. So we're talking. We, had, we became very instant friends because of the Yiddish also. Yeah. And he's a Bachente Heverman. Yeah. So he says to me, he says to me, all my success in life comes from a bracha that I got from the Panovich Rav. I said, no kidding. I said, what was the bracha? He said, when I was a kid, he said, my parents, we had a show. He said, I'm on the stage since I was five. He's known in Israel for the Kuni Lemel yeah, series yeah, yeah, and that. Yeah. But he was, he's, a, he's a great actor. He said, uh, I'm on the stage since I was five. I was a young kid. My parents were in South Africa. And in the same place was staying the Panovich Rav Rav Kahneman, 
who you have a yeah, lot of stories, wonderful yeah, sure. stories about. Anyway, he says that um, Rav Kahneman said to my father, give me dem yingale. Give me this boy. I'll make you into a Talmud Chochem. He said, my father didn't want me to be a Talmud Chochem. He wanted to be an actor. Yeah. He said, but we spent time at that time together with the Panevich Rav. He said, when, we, when the Panevich Rav left, he gave me a bracha. Mike Burstein says. He said to me, yingale, mein yingale, that you should find chen in favor in the eyes of others the way you found chen in favor in my eyes. He says to me, Mike Burstein, that bracha has been the key to all my successes in life. And he's not a, he's not a, a religious man. He's a very religious inside. But, um, but he said to me, in my office, I have a big picture of the Panevich Rav. So I told him, my successes in life don't equal yours. I said, but it's also from the same, same type bracha. of bracha that I got from my grandfather. So what did you do in the summer? So I came in the summertime, and I lived with him in his little room. Upstairs, he had a yeshiva, yeah. base Aryeh. And uh, I had an uncle, Rebbe Foyle, who was a big tzaddik, Rebbe yeah. Foyle Levine. He would learn with me. My grandfather, actually, the first years, in the morning, he would get up very, very early. He would get up to Davin Vasikin in Zoharei Chama. That's the shul with the big sundial opposite yeah. the shul. Yeah. That was the first skyscraper in Jerusalem. <laughs> it was four stories, right? And in it, they had a Vasikin minion where yeah. people would daven very, very early. So he would daven very early, but he never would wake me. He would let me sleep till 8 o'clock. You talk about the Haredim then. Yeah, that yeah. was so normal. Uh, it's something we should talk about maybe. Oh, but yes. but um, he, um, he, would ne- he wouldn't wake me early. But how did he wake me? That was really beautiful. He would never say to me, get up, it's late, you have to go to shul, how come you're sleeping so late? Eight o'clock he would say to me, bin yominke, bin yominke. Then David ben by dein tate in Jersey City in America. <laughs> when do they David in your father's shul in Jersey City in America? And I would say, uh, about eight o'clock. So he would say to me in Yiddish, if you run now, you can still make it. <laughs> so I would go to one of the local shuls in Nachlaot. Every, yeah. every block has its own shul. Right. When I came back, he insisted that he make me breakfast. Right? So I would go up to my aunt in the courtyard. I would get some eggs and olive oil. And then I would come down to him. He didn't have a stove. He had a primus. Primus, right. It was like a, a kerosene stove that looks like a camping stove right. that you take on camping. And I would bring him the eggs, and then he would take a little old frying pan, he would put a lot of oil in it. And I was already starting to break out a little bit. <laughs> and I said, Zayda, nishta zayfil. And he would say to me, I said, not so much. He would say, nein, zayel good, zayel good. And then he would show me how to use his primus. Yeah. So it was, it, there was a big needle that came with the machine, this contraption. <laughs> and you put the needle into the pipes to make sure they're black, they weren't blocked because uh-huh. they sometimes blew up. <laughs> then there was blue alcohol called spirit. Right. Spirit says to me, Melek darain abyssal spirit. You put a little bit of this blue alcohol on the top of the machine. You light it with a match. And then when it gets really hot, the top, you start pumping the bottom. And when you pump the bottom, the kerosene starts moving up. And when the kerosene hits the alcohol, it goes. And that's what you cooked on. So he would show me this. It was great the way he, he, he lit the match and just threw it over his head. And then, and, um, and then he made me an egg, 
and with matzahs that he still had from Pesach. Yeah. But they were, it was very tasty. <laughs> and then I, I, would, I would sit down at breakfast, and then he would learn with me. And it was so geschmack because he had stories, and he, he had a sense of humor. It's tremendous. You know, sense those of people had a sense of humor. Right. Today, they all became vepers. They lost their whole sense of humor. And, you know, today, if you have a sense of humor, you're not from. That's right. But all these tzaddikim, all these tzaddikim had a wonderful sense of humor. So he would learn with me. He would tell me stories. And, um, and then about 1230, he would send me to Hechel Shlomo. This is fascinating. Why would he send me to Hechel Shlomo? To wait for my uncle, his son-in-law, Harav yeah. Eliyoshev. Harav right. Eliyoshev was, was on then the, on the, the head of the Bestin. And he had a seat in Hechel Shlomo, in Shlomo that had a cheirim by the brisky and not right. allowed to go into the building. Right. And that was his office. The ultra, ultra right of Meir Shorim used to bring it up to him sometimes yeah, yeah. that he sat in Hechel Shlomo. Yeah. But I would wait for him and I would walk him home to Meir Shorim. This is almost over 50 years ago. Then he was considered one of the Gedolim of Yerushalayim. Right. So the summers I spent uh, with my cousins, I had, a, I, had a, I had a cousin who passed away. She was a very great Rebetzin, Rebetzin Batsheva Kanievsky. Yeah. She was a first cousin of mine. So the summers were spent with my uncles, my cousins. Yeah. It, w- it was a different world. It was, it was just a different world completely, but a world that's very, very dear to me. You know, I have uh, a story about your uh, grandfather that I've repeated many times. I've repeated it at uh, teachers' conventions. Uh, it's a great story, and a great insight. When uh, they marked, I think, the 30th uh, commemoration of the, his passing, so the head of the religious school system here in Israel uh, was one of the speakers. And he said, I want to tell you a story about Rabari that happened with me, he said. He said, I was 11 years old. And I was in an orphanage. I didn't have parents. I was in an orphanage. And he said, we never had enough to eat. There was a period of time in Eretz Israel. It's hard to believe it today. But there wasn't that much food. It was a difficult time. I remember my father used to send certificates from America. Certificates. Yeah, certificates. That there were care packages That's here, right. I remember and you those. would go to the warehouse and get, you know, and uh, so my my uncles and aunts, uh, the, my grandmother lived off of the packages that my father was sending him the care packages. That's right. We are going to continue with our barrel wine and Revenge Levine, and I will, I guarantee you, I will make sure that in the next hour, uh, that story um, uh, will be played to its conclusion. And the conversation of Rai Barrel Wine with Rai Benji Levine will continue, of course, here at JM in the AM. We're going to take a break because I've been promising for weeks that at 8 o'clock in the morning on Monday during the nine days, we would play and present my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I remind you that the uh, eulogy was delivered at the Shloshim on the 3rd of Av. Yesterday would be the anniversary, the 3rd of Av, back uh, 24 years ago. The Rebbe had passed away on the 3rd of Tammuz. And my father was asked by Rabbi Moshe Herson to be one of the speakers during a program that was dedicated to the memory after 30 days of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And uh, I always um, I always am glad to share 
this segment with this audience because it is a remarkable assessment of the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, an incredible historical perspective, and it certainly shows everybody in this world how amazing a speaker my father was and what kind of understanding he had of Jewish history and its leaders. And um, we like to present this biographical sketch in 25 minutes, the life and leadership of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. That's essentially what it is. Um, my father's eulogy, uh, Rabbi Zev Siegel's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe follows next in America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at com on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. This coming uh, Shabbos, we shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says is Echo Eso Levadi Tochachem Masachem Berifchem. Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues, so he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says the qualifications of leadership should be the following, and this is what the Torah tells us. Get yourselves men Chachomim, wise men, Unevonim, understanding men, Vyiduim leshivtechem, Vasimem beroshechem. Now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabbeinu where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, Chachomim, Chachbo, Nevonim, Bino, Veyiduim, Das, and this is Chabad. The leadership of Klal Yisroel was given to the Rebbe and he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled. He had Klal Yisroel, the entire people of Israel was his concern and a deep concern every corner in the world 
no matter how forsaken it was, and no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul. If there was a man qualified to reconstruct Jewish life after the great Hurban, after the tragic Holocaust that befell our people, he was one man who did it. He reconstructed Jewish life in a very commendable way and at the same time he made Jews feel without any exception whoever they may have been that they are a part of this reconstruction He worried about every Jew wherever he was. And he had a certain devotion and dedication to Claudius Royal. I used to sit and I had the great privilege, and I don't pretend that I understood the rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness but at the same time in my own way I was privileged to spend a great deal of time it is no secret many of you know it I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning, and sometimes even later. And after a while when we were sitting, the bell used to ring. And I tried to get up, because I knew there were people waiting there, people who were older than me. And as I was trying to get up, the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me, he says, what if we are talking about the Kfal? Wir reden wegen Kfalsachen. And there was no disturbance when he was engaged in worrying about Claudius Royal. And I can go on and on about his great concerns. Nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. Well, three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism. And the only underground movement that succeeded 
in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact, I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the Rebbe was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. I was in Riga, and Professor Branover was there. And you probably heard of Professor Branover. Beside being a devoted Hasid, a great scientist, universally recognized, a real Jewish leader, respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel, under every government, and Professor Branover told us the following. When Gorbachev came to power, the Reb, so people were very scared at the time. And the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia, and he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And actually, they accepted the Rebbe's word. And it calmed them down a little bit. But then Branover says when Gorbachev was in Israel recently, and he spent quite some time with him, so he asked Gorbachev, did you really, when you came to power, did you really think that you are going to change from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to, but the Rebbe had enough insight to predict that things will improve. And I can testify it from another angle. You remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers? And this rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane and he was told by the Rebbe that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the Rebbe, so a little time passed, and I was curious, 
And I said to him, I hear rumors that you stopped Sharon from traveling down that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the rabbi says the following. He made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came to say goodbye to me before he went to Israel. And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go. He says, it's true. So naturally, obviously, I ask the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked, why only save Sharon? You could have saved everyone else on that plane. And the rabbi gave me a look like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him. He says to me the following, he, says, he said it in Yiddish, do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked? He came to say goodbye, and all I did was say, don't go. For me, this was testimony of a certain insight. That very rare human beings possess that insight. And this is what Braunover meant. And this insight was used to reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's involvement in Eretz Yisrael. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life, Zionists and non-Zionists. I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate, believe it or not, I was young once, the youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees. And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight one may have been politically, diplomatically well-versed. Or one may have been involved in the economics. Or one may have been involved in science. Or in military affairs. But the rabbi had them all. And I can again say it from personal experience. The hours that I listened and discussed of every conceivable phase 
in the life of Eretz Yisrael. Not only education, not only the practice of Torah, but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz Yisrael. And I don't have to tell you his concern about the Shlemus of Eretz Yisrael. That was on his agenda. And in the last few years he had something to worry about, as we see it now. talk about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach and God forbid for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it. But the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the Mesilas Nefesh of the Shlichim in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago, a Friday night, who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia. And you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night the devotion, the discipline. Nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi who could have stayed in Far Chabad with his family. Instead, he is suffering in Riga. Or a young man, many of you may know Glossman, a wife, a young wife with three infants, doing youth work in every possible way. He's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here, Rebleib Raskin, who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about one o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I say to him, excuse me for keeping you so late, so he says, what do you mean, excuse me? 
First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one. So we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is, there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish I can tell you many stories, but my time is limited. I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70s, when the Jewish community was in a turmoil, and the Rebbe calmed them down, and the Shlichim there did their job. If there is a Seder in Himalaya, who does it? If a shochet was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there. And they are still there. Yes, indeed. Outreach to its maximum all part of a reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Mifzat feeling in the Six-Day War? And feeling was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what film did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, a religious Jew has no problem. Either he dams Minche or Mayriv or Shachris, and if he comes in another part of the day, he says, stealing, he reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the Kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the Kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the Kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on film and say Shema Yisrael. Or all the other projects, the lighting of candles, and other creativity. The Rebbe was the first one on the American Jewish scene who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish neighborhoods. But as it was said at the same time, the Rebbe never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you 
One of the experiences I had, which I must confess to you marked the rest of my life, particularly in the last few years, it was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day I don't know how the Rebbe discovered that I'm going somewhere, I was called and the Rebbe asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report, and again with lack of wisdom, I say to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said, the Rebbe's will listen, as is nicht gewenk in geringe Sach. Sie sind sehr schwer. I said, the Rebbe should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again, the Rebbe looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am, to put it mildly. And he says to me, Alav Segal, Zint ven, otir gemacht a contract mit nuribene shalailom, faragringen leben. The rabbi says to me, since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life? And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said and a great deal will be said. Because in all this, there is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the Manig Hador, he will be the Manig Hadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know I'm as sure as I can be that right now as he stands before the Kisei HaKovot. He is doing everything he possibly can to bring about our Geulo Shlemo B'Mehero Amen. There it is. There it is is right. J.M. in the A.M. with the uh, with the um Eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe delivered by my father back on the 3rd of Av, 24 years ago, a month after the Rebbe's passing. And I thank uh, all of you for your 
patience and indulgence as uh, we try to um, really enhance everyone's um, listening experience during the nine days by playing that amazing piece. It is an amazing piece. My thanks again to Rabbi Moshe Hurston, who encourages us to remind uh, this audience about the brilliant words and uh, deeds of the Rebbe as described by my father each and every year. 24 years since the Shloshim observance of the Lubavitch Rebbe that took place in West Orange, New Jersey. I was there that night, felt I was listening to something very special, and we get a chance each summer to present it to this audience here at JMNAM. And again, I thank you. More coming up 28 minutes after the hour. Let me just remind everybody that this coming Sunday is Tisha B'Av, and we have a few announcements regarding Sunday. Number one, the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island will present an amazing and a beautiful live presentation of both Kinnis and words about Tisha B'Av in five back-to-back presentations. Uh, men and women are invited. It's totally free. Come to the New Springville Jewish Center on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island at 9.15 this coming Sunday. 8.20 is Shachris. And you'll be able to watch all of it at NahumSiegel.com. Again, you'll be able to watch all of it at NahumSiegel.com. Uh, plus, of course, hear it on all of our audio uh, outlets. There will be a Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. There will be Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, 2 p.m., 43rd Street and 1st Avenue, this coming Sunday, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue, this coming Sunday. Please do everything in your power to join us there at the Isaiah Wall across from the United Nations. And the Project Inspire event is a 7 p.m. Sunday with Charlie Harari presiding on another amazing uh, end of the nine days program from Project Inspire. You'll be able to catch all of it here at NahumSiegel.com. We look forward to presenting it to uh, everybody around the world. So that's the story for Sunday. There's a lot of other things to talk about, especially the incredible week that is up ahead after Tisha B'Av for us. Uh, we, will, we will be reminding you all week long about what's happening once Tisha B'Av ends. Uh, we have just an amazing and incredible journey to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh and with NCSY coming up next week. And all the details as we get closer and closer. Plus, a very special Sunday visit to Camp Hask a week from this coming Sunday that we are very much looking forward to. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his series of lectures, uh, information at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. As promised, we're going to start this segment from the story that Rabbi Wine is telling Rabbi Benji Levine, the, the, this lecture, so to speak, is a conversation between Rabbi Wine and the grandson of Rabbi Levine, Rabbi Benji Levine. Uh, Rabbi Wine is going to uh, start now with the story that we uh, interrupted earlier. And I think what we're going to do is we'll play as much as we can between now and 9 a.m. And then tomorrow at 6.05, right after Moda'ani, we will play this lecture, Bezrat Hashem, in its entirety. Uh, again, this lecture, quote-unquote, is a conversation between Rabbi Beryl Wine and Rabbi Benji Levine, um, grandson of a tzaddik in our time. So here it is as we continue with Rabbi Beryl Wine. Again, 1-800-499-WEIN for information about Rabbi Wine's thousands of lectures or go to the web, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. You know, I have... Uh 
a story about your uh, grandfather that I've repeated many times. I've repeated it at uh, teachers' conventions. Uh, it's a great story and a great insight. When uh, they marked, I think, the 30th uh, commemoration of the, his passing, so the head of the religious school system here in Israel uh, was one of the speakers. And he said, I want to tell you a story about Rabariah that happened with me, he said. He said, I was 11 years old, and I was in an orphanage. I didn't have parents. I was in an orphanage. And he said, and we never had enough to eat. There was a period of time in Eretz Israel. It's hard to believe it today. But there wasn't that much food. It was a tzena. It was a difficult time. I remember my father used to send certificates from America, Certificate. right? Yeah, it's certificates that there were care packages That's here. Right. I remember and those. And you would go to the warehouse and get, you know, and... Uh, so my, my uncles and aunts, uh, the, my grandmother, lived off of the packages that my father was sending him the care packages. That's right. And I was, I was very disturbed as a child because I wanted to buy an Encyclopedia Britannica. And my mother told me we can't afford it because we have to send to our relatives. And I said, she said, what are you sending? She said, I must have been eight. So she said, we're sending care packages. I said, don't you care about me? <laughs> That's a care package. But, but, that, but that was, uh, you know, so that was the time. So he said, I'm in this orphanage, and uh, there's very little to eat. They don't give us much to eat. And he said, one day for lunch, they had a special treat. They had chocolate pudding. And he said, I love chocolate pudding. So I got in line. I got my chocolate pudding. And then I got in line again to get a second portion of chocolate pudding. And the cook caught me, and she said to me, you know, get out of here, right? You already had yours. And I said, I'm so hungry, and I love it, so please give me another helping of chocolate pudding. And she said, no, get out, leave me, leave it alone. And he said, in my frustration, I took the whole pot of chocolate pudding and threw it on the floor. Well... They brought down the principal and the head of the orphanage, and they said, well, uh, you know, uh, we don't know if you can stay here uh, with such behavior. But he said, well, tomorrow Rebarye is coming to visit the children here, so we'll present this problem to him. Whatever he says will be all right. And he said, I didn't sleep that night. You know, they're going to throw me out. Where am I going to be, etc." The next day, Rebarye comes. Rebarye didn't have an office. He sat on a bench in the hall. And they brought the boy to him. And Rebarye says, sit down next to me. He sits down next to him. He says, uh, did you do what they said you did? He said, yes, Rebbe, I did it. He said, oh. He said, would you do it again? He said, no, Rebbe, I promise you. I would never do such a thing again here. So he said to him, do you like chocolate pudding? He said, yes, Rebbe. So Rebarya said, I also like chocolate pudding. He took out of his pocket two cups of chocolate pudding, and he said, sit down, and together we'll eat the chocolate pudding. And they ate the chocolate pudding. And the man said, that day I became a Jew.
which is, a, you know, so that's a, a, a typical insight of genius how to handle a problem. I heard that story from the person it happened to. Yeah. His name was Rav Baharan. That's right. Baharan had a, was a wonderful educator. Yeah. He had Upanad Baharan. And he used to come into my father when he was in Farpinas. My father was in part of Yeah. And I once asked him, how, how, why did you become a, a mechanic? And he told me this story. And yeah. by the way, I've heard a lot of people tell it over, but I always mention that you told it over right because they say, so Rabbi gave him, Rabbi took out two chocolate puddings, right. took one for himself that's and one right. from him. That's right. That's now, the genius. That's of the genius. Of it. And they right. missed that point. Now, I got to tell you. So, we don't know what Hersher was on the chocolate pudding. <laughs> They didn't have hexes in those days. <laughs> if it had vegetable shortening and no gelatin, you ate it. That's right. <laughs> but, but what I want to tell you is that, is that Baharat, he was, he was a wonderful, wonderful educator, a wonderful man. And, and he told me this story, that this story influenced him. Now, I didn't know this story, but somewhere in the genes, I'm not talking about my blue genes, I'm talking about, you know, genes, it, it must have happened because in 1968, when I graduated YU, so my father was planning to go back to Eretz Yisrael. <clears throat> yes, he told me. Was he, he, wanted, he really wanted to go from day one. Day one. He never wanted to be out he of Eretz Yisrael. Israel. <laughs> so his whole God Gawimba for Eretz Yisrael. He once told me, he said, that Jersey City is a gullus, he says, and every gullus has to end. And he said, my gullus is going to end too. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted to go he back. He taught himself English wonderfully. Oh, my mother came from London. No, so but she he, but he, uh, he spoke uh, He made drushes in English. Fluently, and, right. fluently. Now, it wasn't true of the older Rabbanim at the time. Nachan, yeah. And he spoke. Roshaniyam Kibbeto, a thousand people in the shul. Right. And his English was mamash beautiful. He yeah, spoke no, beautiful, beautiful English. English. Now, what I wanted to tell you was, uh, I forgot I'm sorry, now. I took you away. I know you're forgetting already now in that. But with Baharan, yeah. With, with, with Baharan. Oh, so why do I say it was in, yeah. So I graduated, uh, so I, gra- I, was in, I graduated uh, YU in 68, and from 68 to 69, my parents were planning to go back to Eretz Israel. So I decided to stay that year and help my parents get everything together. My father had been there for years. And um, in the afternoons, my father would uh, learn with me. In the evening, I started my master's in English literature. And in the morning, I had free time. So my father said to me, the local yeshiva high school are looking for a Rebbe. He said, go, you'll get the job, and for this year, you'll have experience in being a Rebbe. So I said, my father, I don't have any experience. I, I just got my BA. I don't know how to teach in front of a class. So my father said, don't worry, he said, They'll take you. I said, how do you know they'll take me? He said, because they don't have anybody else. <laughs> so it was a real flattery to me that uh, the they're going to take me. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it was real flattering to me that they're going to take me because they don't have anybody else. Yeah. But So I went, and because they didn't have anybody else, they took me. So I came in the first day. This was uh, September 1968 with my Gemara to the Yeshiva of Hudson County, right? And I walk in, and there are about 30 kids in the class. Some of them are bigger than me. And I walk in with my Gemara, and as I walk in and put my Gemara on the desk, a kid throws a paper plane across my desk. <laughs> so everybody's looking at me because it's the first imut, you know, with the, with the new Rebbe. So I, I, put, I had my Gemara on the desk. I walked over to the kid. I grabbed him by the collar. 
I brought him to the front of the class, and I said to him, if you ever make a paper plane like this again in my class, I will throw you out for the entire year. And he got scared. I said, because if you make a plane in my class, you're going to make it right. And I took out a piece of paper, and I made a paper plane, because that's what I did as a kid in school. Right. <laughs> and I threw it across the room, and I said, I don't care what you do in my class, but if you do it, you're going to do it well. And I had a year with them that was wonderful. <laughs> now, I just an adaptation to that. I meet in New York last year a guy who's a very big mancala of a company, very successful. He says to me, do you remember me when you were in my Rebbe many years ago, 40 <laughs> years ago? I said, of course I remember you. He said, I came to you the first day of school, he said, and I said, I only have one request. I said, I remember, but I let him tell me. He said, I said to you, I just want to get once 100 in a Gemara test. And I said to him, eh, no problem. The whole year, <laughs> one test, you'll get 100. He said, I promised my mother. I said, you'll get it. We, I didn't know with whom I had to deal because <laughs> he was a bright boy. But when it came to Gemara, he wasn't there. Dick, he was just didn't help. We made comic books, we made movies, <laughs> and everything. Shosha Nagachasapara, garnish golf, and didn't help at all. All right. Comes the end of the year, he says to me the last week. He said it was a great year. He said, but I will always remember you didn't fulfill your promise to me. I said the year's not over. Two days before the end of the year, I saw that garnish helped, and yeah. nothing helps. I gave him a test for 1,000 points. He got 100. <laughs> so I told him, I told him, just do me one favor. I said, don't tell your mother that the test was for 1,000 points. I met him in New York about a year or two ago. He says, you know, my mother passed away, he said, but she never knew the test was for 1,000 points. <laughs> he got 100. <laughs> so how did you get here? So uh, in the summers, I came a few times, spent the summer with my grandfather, and then, oh, one of the amazing times I came here was for the Six-Day War. Uh I was supposed to go to learn in Karambi Avna that year, my junior year. I had an old Rebbe, you know, why you had some Rebbeim. Great people. You doilim that was so unassuming, if you saw them walk down the street, you would give them a donation or something. You know, and uh, so I had it, Reb Noyach Bornstein. It was the yeah. big, from the big mirror. Right. It was a godel. And he, he walked around, he, most unassuming person you can see. So I told him that I was accepted, Karen Biavna, I'm going there. He said, You're going to stay with me another year. He insisted that I don't go. But it was destined that that year I would get there to Israel because the Six-Day War broke out. And, uh, and I came for the Six-Day War. Now, there's a story within a story. When they came around YU and said they're looking for volunteers because everybody was brought up in the army. I don't know if you remember them before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twelve Arab countries going to throw Israel into the sea. It was a terrible they time. They thought it was terrible. The three weeks before were oh, just... Oh, it was terrible. It was the Holocaust all over again. Everybody thought. And uh, so they went around YU looking for volunteers. I wanted to go to Eretz Israel, and it was also before finals. You could get out of finals. <laughs> so, uh, so I went, and I, um, and then they, but then I, I went to the guys who were arranging this, and my passport was, uh, was up. So they told me, if you go to Rockefeller Center, you can, you can the same day they wired it, to whatever, and you can get, if you pay a little extra, you get a passport. So I went to Rockefeller Center, but they said to me, America is advising people not, not to, to go. go. So wear a hat, don't wear a yarmulke. Say you're going to England or somewhere else. So I went online in Rockefeller Center, and this big guy is sitting there. Says, uh, I said, I need a passport quickly. 
He said, why? He said, my uncle is very sick in London, and I have to go see him. So he looks at me and says, where do you really want to go to? So I said, London. I have my mother's from England. I have to go to London. So he looks at me, the guy in Rockefeller Center. He's a big guy. He looks like me. And he says to me, where are you really going? So I figured, all right, I guess he knows. He's yeah. on the bigger. I said, look, I want to go you know, volunteer to Israel and everything. He says, step out of line and come into the office. So I figured I blew it. So I go into the office. I sit down. He comes in. He closes the door. He says, you know, we advise you not to travel to the Middle East. Yeah. We can't stop you. He says, but the reason I wanted to know where you're going, he says, I have a cousin in Tel Aviv. Could you bring him a package for me? <laughs> And I brought him the package. Anyway, the, anyway, I came to Eretz Israel, and one of the most amazing things was that I, we left the night before the war. Yeah. We arrived in Orly Airport, and uh, some people went back. They had a plane to take people back. We decided we're going. They took us to Greece. Uh, Abba Eben was there and one of the Rothschilds. We stayed in Greece for two days, and then they brought us in the middle of the war into Israel with four Mirage jets guarding us, into the airport, Lord, uh, then Ben-Gurion today, gave us flashlights to find our baggage, and they sent us out to different places. I was sent to Kibbutz Chofetz Chaim. So the, uh, one of the, um, there was a member of the Knesset from the... Um, Kahana. Kalman Ka- uh, Kahana. Yep. So he, after they captured Jerusalem, next day there was a meeting in the Knesset. I had got, come there the day before, so he said, I'll take you to your Zeta in Yerushalayim. So he took me to my Zeta. I got there, I think it was Wednesday. Friday, they came to take my grandfather to the coast. To the coast. Yeah. That was the week of the war. It was not open. Yeah. And my grandfather took me with him. Uh-huh. And we came through these little streets. That wasn't the big Rechava that yeah. they have today. It was very, very narrow. And we're standing in this narrow street. And my grandfather wanted to make a Kriya to rent his garment because he hadn't been to the Kotel since 48. Right. right. I had a pocket knife. Yeah. So I helped him make a Kriya. Yeah. He made a Shechiyonu. It's two Shechiyonus I remember. When nice. I came the first time, when he and came the week of the Six Day War, within the shame. And I remember till today, he said, Shechiyonu, he was crying. And he started running to the Kaisel. And it was the streets, it was narrow. And he fell on the stones. He started kissing him. His hat fell off. All the soldiers came to pick him up. It was one of the most unbelievable scenes that I will never forget in my entire life. I have, uh, you know, I have a, a different type of story, but also uh, I came in the middle of uh, the first Gulf War. And uh, I was, then when you got off the plane, they gave gas masks to the, uh, to the tourists who came. So I get in line, and she gives me a gas mask. And uh, I, w- I went to get my baggage, I, and I looked for the first time at the, at the box she gave me, and in big red letters it said, Pasul, that the gas mask is not working. <laughs> so I got back in line, and I come back to the same, you know, Bolshevik, and I give her the gas mask. And I said, it's written here, Pasul. She looks at me, and then, uh, you know, she said, I tell you, it's Kasher le Mahadrin mina Mahadrin. <laughs> and she gave it back to me. 
Well, I just want to tell you, you were very lucky. Keep more people died from the gas mask <laughs> than died from, from the, the, uh, from the uh, scuds. The, the scuds. <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, Ravaria's attachment. Uh, you know, the famous picture in the, in the book is Ravaria feeding a cat. You remember that picture? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that was... There was a demut. I thought it was Rebaria. Yeah, but I think it's somebody else. No, it's Rebella Lapian. It's Rebella Lapian. And he's, it's so similar that everybody tells me, and I thought it was Rebaria. And then I went to find out about it, and I found that it was Rebella Lapian, the picture with him. Yeah, but yeah. one of the things that I remember as a kid was we used to, since Rebaria's wife passed away, and I came when he was living alone, so I lived alone with him in his room. Yeah. So Friday nights, he would eat with one of his daughters in the courtyard. She had a lot of kids, and uh, also they, they lived very frugally. And, um, and we, w- we would go upstairs to eat with them. And I remember as a kid, one of the fears that I had as an American kid yeah. was there were cats that used to <laughs> jump up on the table in the middle of the meal and grab things. I mean, real chutzpedikas, sabra cats. I mean, Yushalayim are cats. And I mean, I had never seen it. And once my grandfather saw I got scared. This cat jumped up on the table and grabbed something. I remember my grandfather, this is not written in a tzaddik in our time. <laughs> I saw he grabbed the towel and he ran after, he ran after the cat. It says, he held us with Megze Hagenen. He said, they were real chutzpahdik cats. They, they mamish, they were terrible. By the way, one of the things that scared me the most as a kid was, I'd come from America. I'd never in my life seen big snakes in the middle of the street. Right. And a few times the first summer, I saw fights between a snake and a cat, and the cats always won in the end. Now, my father told me a story when he was a little boy. He was in the yeshiva upstairs by Rebaria, and a snake came into the yeshiva. <laughs> so my father was a little kid. He runs downstairs, and Rebaria was sitting downstairs with a, a, a Yemenite, Mekubal, who lived in the Shkuna. His name was Shimon Nagar. He wore a casket. Yeah. And my father, as a little kid, says... Uh, a snake came into the base medrash. What should we do? So Shimon Naga, this time, and he says, Chaim Yaakov, Yesh skula lahavriach nachash me'acheder. There's a special skula that can get a nachash, a snake, out of the room. <laughs> it never fails. Yeah. It's 100%. It works every time. My father's a very smart little kid. He looks at this uh, Shimanagar and he says, what's the skula to get a snake out of the room? And Shimanagar says, you have to be a firstborn, bring a firstborn, who's the son of a firstborn. And if a firstborn, son of a firstborn, goes into the room, the snake goes runs out. away. So my father looks at Shimanagar and says, Shimon, are you the firstborn in your family? He says, yes, I'm the firstborn in my family. He says, was your father also a firstborn? He thinks for him and he says, Voila, So my father says, Shimon, did you hear what you said? You're a Bechor ben Bechor. You're a firstborn son of a firstborn. The you go upstairs. <laughs> he said, no, I'm afraid of snakes. <laughs> That was the end of the schooler. J.M. in the A.M. We are enjoying the uh, conversation between Rabbi Beryl Wine and Rabbi Benji Levine. All of Rabbi Wine's lectures, the information line is 
1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We'll begin tomorrow morning with the entire lecture, the entire conversation between Rabbi Wine and Rabbi Benji Levine. So anybody out there who has missed part of what we've played so far, or if you're very anxious, as I'm sure you are, to hear the rest of this uh, conversation between Rabbi Wine and Rabbi Benji Levine, the grandson of Rabari Levine, uh, then make sure to be tuned in at 6.05 Eastern Time tomorrow morning. J.M. in the A.M., I thanks everybody for tuning in. It's a uh, nine, it's nine minutes before 9 a.m. On, um, on this Monday, our nine days format, with a reminder that we, we will be presenting the uh, Tisha B'Av service, Kinos and words about Tisha B'Av uh, from the New Springville Jewish Center this coming Sunday. You're all invited, 120 Saxon Avenue in Staten Island. Free admission, of course, and you'll be able to see all of it at NahumSiegel.com and hear all of it through our network beginning at 9.15 Sunday morning after a JM Sunday uh, on Tisha B'Av itself. And then, of course, uh, Charlie Harari at 7 p.m. leading the Project Inspire program that you'll be able to hear and see at NahumSiegel.com. Uh, there will be a Mincha service on Sunday. Mincha, 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall. Mincha, 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd and 1st, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City. Again, Mincha service at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd and the 1st in New York City. A um, couple of things um, regarding uh, this week and... Uh, and things that um, came across our desk this morning. First of all, um, <clears throat> there will be a new edition of After Further Review. Those of you who are sports fans, uh, Yoni Pollock will lead After Further Review starting at 10 a.m. this morning here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Also, on um, Novak Now, Jake Novak with a new show, he will discuss how the hit show Westworld is like a political and Jewish philosophy class wrapped into one. That's Novak now at 11 a.m. Eastern time. There will be a new show again. That's today starting at 11 a.m. Jake Novak, Novak now here at the Nahum Siegel Network. I assume Jake will also you know, say a word or two about uh, what's happening in Europe now with President Trump's uh, visit. Uh, a very, very big happy birthday shout-out. To Arasha Leah Gifter of Staten Island, who celebrated birthday number 12 this past Shabbos. Lasha Lou, we cannot believe you're such a big girl already. We hope you had a fabulous day. Wish you a wonderful year ahead. And Mazel Tov to Rasha Leah's big sister, Hannah Miriam Gifter Rosen of Brooklyn, who celebrated a birthday yesterday. Hannah Miriam, now that you're a married lady, we'll leave out your age, but we hope you had a wonderfully happy birthday. Ladies, in case you didn't know, we love you both to the moon and back with much love from Bubby and Zadie. And I think everybody at this point who's familiar with JMNAM knows that that means uh, listener Cena and Mr. Listener Cena. <laughs> I like having fun with Ira. He's a fun lover. Um, it means them when we talk about uh, Bubby and Zadie down in Florida. So there you go. Uh, plenty going on next week. If you're not uh, yet familiar with our amazing um, a lineup for next week when we head to Israel, uh, we will make you familiar before we leave. Uh, all through the rest of this week, I will give you the uh, information about what's happening next week. A lot of inspiring programming. And again, we will have it for you here 
at the JM in the AM. Also, um, a reminder, tomorrow, uh, Dr. Fagi Zakheim was with us the other day on Friday here at JM in the AM. And I remind you that tomorrow, uh, but the Falls View Estates Shul, the Falls View Estates Shul is where it's going to take place. I'm talking about the annual Catskills nine-day conference brought to you by, by the United Task Force for Children and Families at Risk. It's happening tomorrow. Again, it's going to be um, it's going to be at the uh, Fallsview Estate Shul on Fallsview Drive in Fallsburg. The topic is is giving our children everything, really giving them nothing. Hmm. Uh, that's the topic. It'll be addressed by Dr. David Palkovitz, Rabbi Mordechai Besser, Hindi Klein, Dr. Faye Zakheim, all together tomorrow at one thirty p.m at the Fallsview Estate Shul. Again, that's tomorrow at 1.30. Information, 347-666-3274, 347-666-3274. And I remind you that Project Witness has the um, amazing, and it really is an amazing, uh, brand-new documentary entitled Roja, and it'll be shown today up in Muncie, at the Yeshiva of Spring Valley at 8 p.m., in Flatbush at Kahalbane Avraham Yaakov on Avenue N at 8 p.m., tomorrow in Lakewood at Yeshiva Orchos Chaim at 8 p.m., in the Five Towns uh, tomorrow night at the Young Israel of Lawrence Cedarhurst. Wednesday, it'll be shown in the Catskills for w- Women and Girls at Camp Tubby in three showings, in the Borough Park for Women and Girls on Wednesday at Terrace Golda, and for men at Lipschitz Hall on 14th Avenue. And then this coming Thursday, Roja is being shown by Project Witness at the Young Israel of Kew Gardens Hills at 8 p.m. and down in Baltimore at the Base Yaakov High School at 7.30. Information, projectwitness.org, projectwitness.org, or 718-305-5244, 718-305-5244 for all the information you need. Um, so there you have it. Coming up, as we said, uh, we're our, our next live presentation is going to be Yoni Pollock on the subject of sports after further review. That happens at 10 a.m. this morning. And at 11 a.m., Jake Novak with Novak Now. That'll be coming up. And uh, again, a reminder, it's a very busy Tisha B'Av. We will be talking about next week because there's a lot to talk about and a lot I want you to be aware of. Uh, but we can't skip over what's happening this week. A really informative and inspiring nine days programming. And then on Tisha B'Av itself, after JM Sunday, live from the New Springville Jewish Center, uh, 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd and 1st for Mincha, 43rd Street and 1st Avenue for Mincha in Manhattan. And at 7 p.m., Project Inspire with Charlie Harari and company uh, with the uh, end of Tisha B'Av program, which is always amazing. Achenu Israel and Achim Achem, our brothers, and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com. On the NachumSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. And that wraps up a Monday, nine days format at JM in the AM. Plenty more tomorrow. Make sure to be tuned in starting at 6 a.m. when we pick up the entire conversation between Rabbi Beryl Wine, Rabbi Benjamin Levine, Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Till tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you, 
Remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. <laughs>